it's August 1982. Welcome to the Player Missile Podcast. This is episode 25, and my name is Rob. Let me start off by saying, don't get used to this pace. As an example of my unreliability, let me summarize some gaps between episodes here. So we have three months, seven months, a year, 18 months, nine months, 10 months, and three weeks. And while I hope to have a like shorter turnaround time than the, what would that be, like eight-month average... I'm pretty sure you should not be holding your breath for three-week turnaround on these episodes in the future. Just public service announcement. I got some nice feedback, you know, shock and surprise for a new episode on Twitter. I got a nice email from Gabriel who said he discovered the podcast and it said, it's quickly become my favorite podcast. So thank you very much. And said he was afraid he wasn't, I wasn't going to keep producing him and said he found one showing up in his podcast feed and said he just had to send a fan email. So thanks a lot and I hope your hacking with your 600XL is going well. I gotta send a big shout out to Pennsylvania and my Pennsylvania listener Peter, who said I pronounced Catasauqua decently well. So thanks, Lehigh County, Pennsylvania, home of Catasauqua. Of course, Lehigh is probably actually pronounced like Lahiga, as a way to identify locals versus non-locals. There's a town in Missouri named after the Royal Palace of Versailles, but locally it's pronounced Versailles. So yeah, I really love town names that are or places and whatever that have just like these slight little twists on things to. And I don't know if it's done purposely to kind of identify locals versus outsiders, but it's certainly effective in doing that. Another thing I wanted to mention about the last episode was I talked about the IRG graphics mode being mentioned in the compute, I think it was, uh, talking about index mode 4 and 5, and how I didn't really know what IRG meant. On Twitter, Bill Kendrick kind of ran with that for a little bit and noted he named his software-driven graphics mode Super IRG, but couldn't remember where he first heard IRG. K. Savitz did some digging around in the Atari reference manuals in Dairy Atari and only found IRG to indicate inter-record gap in the cassette storage system. And then finally, Bill Lang said IRG is instruction register graphics and pointed to a reference in Compute's second book of Atari. And then Bill Kendrick spotted another reference in the Atari 400-800 computer system hardware manual, the November 1980 version. So yeah, it seems like IRG is instruction register graphics. Okay, well, strap yourselves in here. This is going to be a long episode. I found a new magazine to introduce to the podcast, one that I thought was Apple only, but turns out has some Atari content. It's Softline, and it, that which is kind of an extension of Softalk. Softalk is an Apple only magazine, but Softline is their sort of games, like standalone magazine that ends up covering Atari. And I, it's too bad I didn't realize it was going to be like having some Atari content because I've definitely seen some soft lines at the Kansas Fest Garage giveaway that I would have like snagged had I known. But since it's already been published for a while, so we're going to catch up. We've got six soft lines to cover. And so I'll kind of summarize the six soft lines. And then next episode, we'll be current with them. So we'll pick up with uh, just a single episode. But first, let's start here with my big four. And we have three of those this time. All right, here's Antic. It's volume one, number three, for August 1982, two bucks fifty on the color cover price. It says Antic, the Atari resource, in its normal font. And under that it says printers, printers, printers. And unsurprisingly, it shows a printer. It's kind of a red printer and it shows some of the, the guts of it and the, like the print head. It kind of almost looks like a daisy wheel sort of print head, but it's printing out a graphic image of an Atari logo, kind of a rainbow Fuji. And I'm actually going to be flipping pages here because I have a copy of this one. I actually have this one, I have a Creative Computing, and I have a Micro. I don't have a Compute. I'm kind of missing some of my Computes. I have Computes starting later on. Let me look up my list here. I have a couple early Computes, and then I don't have another Compute, a physical copy, until, what, April of 1983. 
So ha- if you have some computes you feel like donating to the cause, I'd ha- happily take them. But for now, let's get back to Intic. So on the inside front cover, there's the Remember the Elephant Floppy Disk ad. On the next page is Mosaic uh, Upgrade. It's 32K RAM upgrade, which I never had to deal with. I, my first computer was the 1200 with the 64K. And then later, I ended up getting an 800 with 48K that I ended up using for uh, Omnimon and some of my hacking stuff. Then the table of contents, I'm not going to really go over that since we're pretty much going to at least look at everything. The next is an ad for Percom, and in this ad it says, Your Atari 800 is the finest home computer on the market. So did Percom only make stuff for Ataris, or do they have other, they do for other systems? Because it seems like if they said, you know, your blank is the best computer in the market for every single computer they had, that's a little disingenuous. So I'm wondering if, if Percom was Atari only, or if they indeed were disingenuous about all their advertisements. I have some letters to the editor. One of them says uh, comments about the listings, and I guess the old antics, and I don't recall because it's been a while since I've actually looked at it. They had listings that went all the way across the page, and this one of the uh, readers was requesting to put like 40 column listings as references uh, soft side. It says the formats are narrower to match the screen, so you can kind of like do a visual compare if the screen is identical to what you typed in. And their response is, we are experimenting with narrow formatting and agree it is useful. And it seems like the listings here later on are mostly in 40-column format. And next we have a review of the printers. And so these are all dot matrix printers at the time. They did have Daisy Wheel, and they also had, you know, the, was it, was it the 1020 plotter? Or I guess that probably wasn't out at this time, huh? Uh, shoot, I forget the plotter name. I'll, I'll find it. I'm sure I'll find it in an ad. But it has the uh, NEC 8023A, the Epson MX80, the Atari 825, the MPI 99G, the Axiom GP100, the CITO 8510, the Okidata 84A, and the IDS Prism. And it has a big old comparison chart about, you know, printing speed, uh, what characters per inch they support, you know, that says like 5, 10, 12, and then there's a condensed 16 or 17. Do this for proportional, bidirectional printing. Most of these have, in fact, all of them are, um, requiring the 850 interface. Some have serial and some have uh, parallel connections, though. It mentions the Atari 825 as really just a Centronic 727 with an Atari label. It goes quite a bit. It covers each printer in, in pretty good detail. And then it skips forward a couple pages to the conclusion. It says, okay, which printer's for me? That is a question that can be answered only by careful review of your current and future needs. It says if you're a programmer and just need listings, then any of the printers would do. But if you were looking for word processing stuff and they added... Uh, like Text Wizard and Letter Perfect as sort of examples of the editors at the moment, then you might want to look more carefully at some of the features. But it doesn't really have a conclusion. It doesn't recommend any particular one. It just says, you know, here's a list of stuff and make your own decisions. And I apologize. That was uh, the title of that was Printers Reviewed by John Lovelace. And the next article is Basic Range Delete by Adrian Derry, which is a little machine language subroutine that allows you to sort of delete a range of basic lines it resides in page six, and you just call it with a USR, giving it the first and last lines you want to delete, and it'll, it'll wipe all those out. Oh, there's the ad for Fernando Herrera and My First Alphabet, the Atari Star Award. And here's the ad for a game, Ghost Encounters. I'm, I think what I'm going to do for this episode is I'm going to review a game that I see in one of these ads, and I, I've already picked it out, and I'll tell you when we get there. But that might be my new sort of game review technique until I got Omnivore going, is to find a, an ad and look at one of the games and see, you know, would I buy it if I saw it in the computer store? So yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do. There's a program, Translate by Jerry White, which 
translates a number, like a set of digits, into the, the English string representation. So its example is 1,478. It would take the, you know, 1478 and translate it into the string 1,478, you know, in, in characters. He envisions it as a check writing program. And he says, if you, if you write a check writing program, please remember that Jerry starts with a J. So yeah, I don't think I'm going to write you any checks there, Jerry. And next is a little addendum. It says two more printers. The AlphaCom Model 42, reviewed by Jim Caprell, which is $199, the least expensive printer I have found, he says. It's a thermal printer. And the other one is a Smith Corona TPI or TP1? I'm not sure. Maybe TPI, the font is unclear. It's by The review is by Matt Loveless. And it, that's a Daisy Wheel printer. Or as they say here, it's a letter quality printer. And very slow, 12 characters per second, whereas some of the dot matrix printers were getting in the hundreds of characters per second. And on the facing page is actually an ad for the Smith Corona TB1 or TBI. Next page is a starting line column. Oh, those bugs is the title by David Plotkin. And the opening says, after the publication of Chicken and Attack on the Death Star in past issues of Antic, we received many calls from puzzled readers who were unable to make the programs run. Since both listings were correct, we know many of you need help finding errors. This month's starting line will be some elementary guidance in debugging basic programs. Oh, that's interesting. So if both listings are correct, are they asking to debug the programs that were printed in the magazine? Not quite sure. This is sort of a guide of some of the errors you get in BASIC. There's a value error, string length error, number greater than 32767, input statement, cursor out of range. Yeah, it's more like an overview of errors than it is like helping debugging actual programs. So yeah, this is of questionable value, I think. There's an ad for letter perfect. There's an ad for a speech synthesizer from... Uh, Street Electronics Corporation called the Echo Speech Synthesizer? I haven't heard of that one. The next article is a program called Banner Maker by Paul E. Hoffman. It allows you to make banners on most common printers, which I remember doing that. You know, these tractor feed paper, you just print, sort of print large characters sideways and cover like many, many sheets of paper. So what this program does is it essentially enlarges all the font, you know, the 8 by 8 pixel font for each of the Atari characters and enlarge them so then it can print out in a, a large size on the printer. Next, we have an article, Spin Colors with the Spider by John and Mary Harrison. It's a little drawing program in GTIA Mode 11. It says, when you run the program, a white spider appears and the fire button changes the spider's color. As you move the joystick, the spider leaves a trail of its color. When the spider is white, it can be positioned without leaving a line. Although it says then it actually draws in background color. So it's not actually not leaving a line, it's just drawing in background. So no way to save the program, just looks like a Way to kind of draw in Graphics 11. Just kind of a doodle pad. And here we come to an ad, and this is the game we're going to review for this episode. I've seen this ad for, like, many episodes. Long, It's been advertised for a long time. It's called Rear Guard by Adventure International. I'm going to describe the ad to try to give you a feel for it. It's, it's a very nice ad. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's full color. It's, as you can imagine, over-representing the graphics that it's going to provide. But at the top. So it was a star field for most of the the bulk of the page. As you near the bottom, there's kind of this alien sort of landscape. Doesn't look, there's no doesn't look like there's an atmosphere of a planet, but it looks like some planet or asteroid or something. There's kind of a moon in the distance up above, and there's a there's a kind of twin engine jet fighter in the foreground shooting off like a blue laser thing, chasing these two more vaguely saucer shaped aliens, kind of flying off in the distance, trailing purple exhausts. It says at the top, they came out of the blue of the western sky, and it's up to you to stop them. Rear Guard, featuring arcade action, graphics, and sound. It says, you know those alien residents who look like blue jello and smell like a cow pasture on a warm day? Well, they're up in arms about something and have declared war. 
Their weapons are cyborg ships with their intelligent parts suspended inside. These cyborgs pursue like crazed bats and try to kamikaze your crew pods. You're armed with an unlimited supply of guided energy darts, but even when you blast them, their doomsday missiles come right at you. Good luck, you'll need it. Rear Guard features many extras, which are usually found only in coin-operated video arcade machines. These include advanced play levels, running high score, two-player option, brilliant horizontal scrolling, and great sound effects. And they show an uh, image of the Apple version, Atari version, and TRS-80 version. And honestly, it looks like the Apple version is the best. The Atari version is not very detailed, although it does, it does show a little ship uh, and a larger, I presume, enemy, enemy ship, some terrain and and it says, we are overrun. And the TRS-80 version is just blocks. It's like super, super blocky. The Apple version shows like five or six enemies on the screen at the same time, an explosion, and sort of like a big status line on the top of the screen with looks like shields and energy. So yeah, so we're going to review this game and kind of see what it's like. And, and yeah, as I said, maybe this will be the, the thing I do for the near future before Omnivore is ready again. But yeah, like I said, I've seen this ad for, yeah, seriously, months and months. In all different magazines, too, not just Antic. I've seen him in uh, Creative Computing and Compute. It must have cost a lot to run these ads in all those magazines for all this time. So let's see. We'll, we'll check in the review if uh, I think it was worth it or not. Next article is Pack Invaders by Vince Scott. Uh, it's a basic game. The listing covers about one and a half full pages. It's kind of like Space Invaders where the characters are Pac-Man characters. The next article is Typo which apparently is an acronym for Type Your Program Once by William Wilkinson, who presumably is Bill Wilkinson? I haven't seen him credited like this before. But it says Typo is designed to help you find typing errors made while entering basic programs published in Antic. So it's kind of like a bunch of checksums and things that... And they have uh, on the previous program, the Pack Invaders, it has presumably what is this this Typo checksum listing. Apparently it's usable with Atari Basic and Basic A+. Uh, the listing itself is further on in the magazine. But I won't really cover that since we don't really use that anymore very much. Most of the stuff has been already digitized and available elsewhere. There's an article on Pilot Colors for Your Pilot by Ken Harris. No, sorry, Ken Harms. My glasses are failing me. There's an ad for the Voice Box Speech Synthesizer by the Alien Group. There's a Systems Guide column by James Caparello, The Memory Map. So this is page two continued. Not from page two of the magazine, but page two in memory. So it lists the decimal and hex address, the sort of standard um, variable name, and a small description, a one-line description of what it does. Somehow they have some names, variable names, like 29C is tempxi, but for the description it's question, question. So from the name it's like a temporary variable, but it doesn't really say more. And there's a few other like that where they have, they have some names, but they don't have descriptions of what they do. Next article is Zarkon by Linda M. Schreiber. It's a modification of the familiar game of Hangman, the opening sentence says. This article shows you how to write it in basic with your Atari computer. So it talks about redefining the character set, and then it gets into a little commentary about the program, about the menu, and how the program sort of works. And it covers... The listing itself covers about six pages, I guess. Or six columns, rather, spread across four pages. And this looks like it's listed in a 40-character in a listing, as, in, as one of the people requested in the um, letters to the editor. There's an article on the a printer buffer. This Practical Peripherals has a 16K printer buffer. So it says it's a board that fits inside an Epson printer and allows it to buffer a bunch of stuff to let the 850 finish sending all its data and the computer can get back to work while the printer keeps printing. 
And I guess I sort of forgot about that on printers. You know, you, the printer was totally software controlled, so the computer was tied up while the printer was going. There's definitely a bunch of things you sort of nostalgically forget and how annoying some of the features were of these old computers. Speed of I.O. is definitely one. Let me get some product reviews. The Threshold is a game from online systems reviewed by Beth Kaplan. It's a, as I remember, kind of a Galaxian kind of game. I remember seeing it on the Apple II. I never saw it on the Atari. There's something called Word Race, reviewed by Ron Mitchell. This is from Don't Ask Software, the same people that did Sam. It says, it's a dictionary of 2,000 words in a word game of three levels. Okay, it says, uh, as many four players can compete, each player has a menu of six definitions of a given word. I guess you're supposed to choose the correct definition. Sounds like an arcade hit. And speaking of Sam, there's an ad for Sam. It says, your Atari can already talk. Sam from Don't Ask Software, only fifty nine ninety five. There's an article on Turtle Graphics by Gordon Smith, but interestingly, it's Turtle Graphics in fourth. So, two languages I don't know, fourth and logo. Let's throw them together, and I know it even less. And there's a book review. Uh, the book is Atari Learning by Using by Thomas E. Rowley. Reviews by Casey Stahl. Seems like it's a small book. It's 73 pages. Oh, and buried in the article, it says the full title is actually Atari Basic Learning by Using. So it looks like there's a bunch of small demo programs that sort of work on various aspects of the Atari. And the reviewer says that the book is so thin you'd be apt to pass it up, but please don't. And that's about it. We're here we are at the end. There's an advertiser's index. On the inside back cover, it's an ad for Datasoft. The four games are Pacific Coast Highway, Canyon Climber, Clowns and Balloons, and a Shooting Arcade. Each available on disc or cassette. Suggested retail price of twenty nine ninety five. On the back is an ad for the official Frogger, the popular arcade game now available for home computers. It says Apple version by Olaf Lubeck, who's a name I seem to remember. And the Atari version is by John Harris, who is definitely famous for doing some cool Atari stuff. And that's it for this antic. Alright, next, let's look at Compute. This is issue 27, volume 4, number 8, for August 1982. $2.50 on the cover price, pound eighty-five in the UK. Compute, the journal for progressive computing. And above the title it says, The New Wave of Personal Computers. An in-depth look at the new Commodore 64, Sinclair Color Spectrum, Epson Portable Computer, and more. The cover art's in their usual style, kind of like pencil drawing. Sort of the centerpiece is a file cabinet with apples in it, and a person from behind it looking at this alligator that's crawling along, making, turning the corner around the filing cabinet. From the top of the magazine hanging down is a, a phone handset, you know, the old-style acoustic phone. It says, Vic, are you there, Vic? I don't know, I wonder if alluding that the Vic is not going to be around much longer, because the Commodore 64 is about to chomp it. In the text, it says, Household Budget Manager, VIC-20 Communications, the RS-232 interface, Apple Data Manager, an intelligent filing cabinet, Home Energy Monitor for Radio Shock Color Computer, Guess That Animal, an educational Commodore slash Atari game, and Inner Basic for Pet slash Commodore. So we'll be looking maybe at maybe one of those? We'll see. And reviews two Vic word processors? Nope. And Basic A Plus for the Atari? Yep. Inside front cover ad is the elephant. Remember more than just another pretty face ad? Seeing that ad a lot here recently. Skip a few non-Atari ads and then we get to the table of contents. The Atari stuff that's called out is the Atari Sketchpad in the Education and Recreation section. In the reviews of Basic A Plus, in the columns and departments, there's the Inside Insight Atari. And in the journal section, they have Atari Video Graphics and the new GTIA Part 2, Animation and Player Missile Graphics, a substring search utility, and a system clock for the Atari. 
In the Ask the Readers section, there's a user that's having problems with the uh, cassette recorder saying this person's afraid to say to start on any large programs because can't trust that the C-save or C-load are going to actually work and wants to hear some suggestions. And in reply, it says, proper maintenance of a cassette recorder is essential. The head should be cleaned regularly and demagnetized. It says solvents and tools for these jobs available at any electronic supply store. And it says something. It says the Atari Source program is FSK Tones. And I had no idea what that meant, so I had to look it up. Wikipedia says it's a frequency shift keying. And it says the simplest FSK is binary FSK, which presumably is what the Atari is using because it only needs to transmit zeros and ones. So it looks like it stretches out the frequency. So lowering the frequency for a zero and increasing the frequency for a one. That's about as far as you get here with signal analysis on from my brain. All right, back to the magazine. There's an ad from this company called Arcade Plus, which I've seen this ad before. This one's advertising Arcade Pro Football and Night Rally. And we come to an article, The New Wave of Home Computers by Tom Halfhill. Above the title, the summary says, Computers with more power and lower price tags than ever before will be coming on the market soon. These are the highlights of two important trade shows held recently in Chicago and Houston. So this is sort of a summary article. It mentions the TRS-80 color computer being lowered in price to $299. talks about the Commodore Max, which is a cartridge-based game machine targeting the Atari VCS. I don't, don't know that that ever actually came out, or in significant numbers anyway. But it seems like it has a 6510, which is in the, in the Commodore 64, and a SID chip. And then it talks about the C64, which there it points to an article later on that we'll definitely take a look at. And that Commodore promises both the Max and the 64 should be available by the time you're reading this. And I think this is about when? Uh, August of 82, when the C64 comes out. And it says they're still going to be selling the VIC-20. And VIC-20 won't be viable for long, as we know. And it talks about the Commodore Pet. It has some upgrades. And then mentions the Sinclair ZX Spectrum. It even then has a bigger call out of the Spectrum. It describes it as having a Z80 running at 3.5 megahertz, 16K RAM, a 16K basic in ROM, 256 by 192 graphics. It says dot addressable graphics, and it says redefinable character sets. It says it has keys similar in appearance to the calculator style keys on the Coco, but made out of a soft rubber that feels spongy to the touch. It says most of the 40 keys have at least four functions, and some have six. And it says the Spectrum's sound consists of a single tone generator controlled by the keyword beep, which is an accurate description. It says don't expect the kind of sound you'd hear from Ataris or the new Commodores, but even a beep is better than silence. Yeah, your mileage may vary. It says they expect to see ZX Spectrums by the end of 82. And then has a little review of the Epson HX20, or I guess preview, not really review. So this is one of those kind of all-in-one sort of notebook computers. It includes a little bit, a little thermal printer as well. So the 24-column dot matrix, well, I'm not sure it says thermal, it just says dot matrix now. And a 20-column by 4-row LCD screen. This is an optional microcassette drive. It has a full-size, full-stroke keyboard. 16K RAM expandable to 32K, built-in RS-232 port, uh, Microsoft Basic standard built-in clock calendar, all for the low, low price of $7.95, available in September. And sort of wrapping up this article, it says the most exciting news was the hardware, but they also had some software stuff. It mentions Atari announced a partnership with Lucasfilm to develop new video games for coin ops, home game machines, and computers. It says, Lucasfilm did special effects for such movies as E.T., the extraterrestrial. Hmm. I wonder if Atari's going to have a game featuring E.T. Hmm. 
I bet it'll be a hit. It says Atari mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark specifically is and was going to become a game, although nothing specifically about E.T. at the moment. And Atari also announced price cuts of about 22% for a bunch of existing games. And finally, wrapping up this thing, it talked about Texas Instruments uh, announcing a flood of new software for its TI-994A computer. No less than 45 titles, including 30 cartridges. Here's a column on structured programming. It's called The Beginner's Page, a monthly column by Richard Mansfield, assistant editor. It says, never use GoTo! Amongst other things, it says there's two ways to develop programs. Number one, improvise as you go. Or number two, plan everything first. In the plan everything first department, it talks about using flowcharts. And I think flowcharts are a really good idea for like getting the idea of a particular algorithm, how it works. But I mean, flowcharting an entire program would seem to be huge. I don't know. I've never done it. Maybe I should do it and try it and see. I wonder if I could flowchart like a game. I wonder if that would be flowchartable. There's an article, The Household Budget Manager by Richard Colliger of Vienna, Virginia. Personal budget program designed for Atari and Commodore PET. It says to adapt to the Apple or VIX accompanying notes. Seems like it's fairly full-featured. It has a large main menu where you can enter your checks or print your check register, update your balances in different categories, calculate sales tax, perform a search, or save your data. Uh, the basic listing covers probably six columns, full page of you know, 40 column text. And then it has the Commodore version, I guess, for the pet in a different font, interestingly. The Atari version is printed in a dot matrix looking thing, and the Commodore version is printed in, printed in like a letter quality, like Daisy Wheel. There's an article t- titled Word Games by August Shaw of Buckfield, Maine. Looks like a, a basic program allowing you to print out word scrambles, word searches, crosswords, that kind of thing. And then we get to the first look at the Commodore 64 by Tom Halfhill. So it says, this is the first installment of a two-part article for the reviewing the features and capabilities of Commodore's new mid-priced home computer. And it starts, your first look at the new Commodore 64 might cause you to overlook. That is, the 64 looks so much like the familiar VIC-20 that you might miss it altogether. He says it has the same 66-key full-stroke keyboard and the same compact plastic case. It's a different colored case, though. And says, eagle-eyed observers also notice slightly different port configurations. Those are the only differences externally. Yeah, so tooling for injected molded cases is, like, super expensive. So I'm not surprised they reused the case. There's a interesting history with the Atari Jaguar. Remember that video game console that Atari came out with in the 90s? Apparently, the injection molding kits, the big tooling, the dies and stuff that create the injection molding, cost Atari $250,000 to make. And as Atari was liquidating, they sold it on, I think, on eBay for, like, 4000 5000 bucks to a dental equipment manufacturer that then use it to make these sort of wall-mounted, I don't know, some sort of dental thingy. That's the technical term. But yeah, so the injection molded dies are like super expensive, so I'm not surprised they reused the case. But they changed the color so it looks a little bit different. So the article really starts with a summary of the hardware. It's got 64K of RAM, fitting for the name. It says it includes a built-in RF modulator. It has the 40 column by 25 line screen. It says 16 color graphics. The most sophisticated three-voice sound synthesizer chip in the home computer market. Optional plug-in Z80 microprocessor board for CPM compatibility. Three screen modes, so it's got the 40 by 25 text, 320 by 200 graphics, and 200 by 160 medium resolution graphics. Then it talks about it has sprites known as player missiles to Atari buffs. Yes, indeed. And right here it doesn't list any of the details about the sprites. It says it shares most of the peripherals with the VIC-20. Except the disk drive, it says the the VIC-1540 disk drive, which is the drive for the VIC-20, 
needs to have a ROM chip change, so it says it'll, it'll produce a new drive called the 1541. It says up to five drives can be daisy-chained, and other stuff like the VIC graphic printer can be chained onto the drives as well, and says it will allow compatibility with a wide range of CBM peripherals, I guess Commodore Business Machine, like sort of pet peripherals, with an optional plug-in cartridge that provides IEEE 488 interface. It uses the 8K PET Basic 2.0, and most basic programs written for the 40-column PETs will run without modification unless they use pokes to mess with the hardware. It also says that the cassette interface is shared among all the Commodore machines. The CPU is a 6510, which is essentially the same as the 6502, except for some additional input-output lines. And the VIC-2 chip is apparently called the 6567 video interface chip. It says it allows 255 combinations of border and background colors, but that doesn't necessarily mean 255 colors, just combinations of colors, so I'm not exactly sure what they mean by that. It says 16 text colors and all 64 pet graphics characters. The sound chip is the SID, of course. Its uh, number is 6581. And here it talks about the sprites. It says theoretically up to 256 sprites. Although Commodore says 48 is a realistic limit for display purposes. And it says there's a further limit of 8 sprites per scan line. So that's quite a lot of moving stuff. I don't know if that's really the deal or if that is still kind of the like marketing speak, if there's that many moving things available. It says there are things called raster scan interrupts, which are it's as similar to the Atari display list interrupts. Although, of course, with the Atari, you can change graphic modes, and I'm not sure that that is possible with the Commodore. Although, it must be. I've seen Commodore games with, like, graphics and text mixes, so that must be possible as well. They just don't have as many graphics modes as the Atari does. It says Commodore's provided collision and priority registers for the sprites, and that the 64 only has sprites, not missiles, like the Atari does. It said sprites can be found up to 21 pixels high and 24 pixels wide, with up to three colors each. In addition, a single statement can... Double a sprite in either direction or both. And best of all, movement is extremely simple and fast. Specify an XY position on the screen and the sprite is there. So definitely some advantages of the sprite generation over the Ataris. Then it talks about the SID chip. It says the most sophisticated sound capabilities of any home computer on the market. It says it's much more than a tone generator. It's got true sound synthesizer capabilities with an envelope generator for each of its voices. Programmable attack, decay, sustain, and release for each voice plus a choice of four waveforms, plus programmable high-low band and notch pass filters, plus 16-bit frequency resolution over a 9-octave range from 0 to 4 kilohertz. So that, that also sounds good, although I like pokey music. Pokey music, to me, has sort of a characteristic sound, whereas the SID, I don't know, can sound like, it can sound like a bunch of different things to me. I don't know. That's, I guess that's my personal preference, and perhaps yours as well. And then finally, in this article, it says... It allows cartridges up to 16K of ROM and 2K of RAM. Interesting that the RAM could be built into the cartridge sort of automatically. And it says there are ports for two Atari-type joysticks or four paddles. And next month, part two will take an even more detailed look at all of the 64's advanced features. So that's good. Yeah, it sounds like a, yeah, probably a slightly more advanced machine than the Atari. Of course, coming out, what, three years later. On one of the recent RCR podcasts, they were talking about, you know, had Atari sort of made incremental improvements to the machine, like, you know, come out with the Antic 2 or something, that they could have kept the system sort of in step with some of the features that the 64 and other machines were developing. But they kind of sat on it, you know, they didn't really change the hardware at all, even through the life of the, the XE. Of course, by that time, it was Trammell owning the company, and so they really didn't have any, you know, desire to spend any more money, it seemed. 
Yeah, and so this was Tremel here owning Commodore. And the I guess the mode that Tremel used was like make things as cheap as possible. And apparently stuff was so cheap that as the 64 was produced, there were a lot of returns and the quality control was not very good. So anyway, well, next issue will continue on with a look at the 64 and um, for now we'll get back to interesting Atari stuff. The next article is Don't Forget Testing by Dave Johnson of Mountain View, California. Apparently he is a professional programmer for Atari and offers insight into debugging. Talks about the benefits of writing it in a structured manner, organized, and that it's easier to find bugs if it's easier to read the program. And talks about testing as like two types of testing to consider. One is the testing that you set up and conduct, and the other is testing that independent people perform on your software. So nowadays it might be the term of like um, unit testing and then systems testing, and says you should develop a structured, organized testing plan for each testing method. When I read that today, I read it as sort of like a unit test. It's like for each you know method or procedure, there should be a test. But he's sort of talking about the larger picture here, you know, like of testing yourself and then testing it for other people. But he does mention here that to come up with test cases that are inputs that'll test some part of the program. And that's something I don't do enough of in my own development is, you know, unit testing. I always am loath to spend the time to set up all these unit tests because it's hard. I mean, it takes almost the same amount of time as developing the code and developing the code is much more fun. But then if you have unit tests and you set them up to be like an automated test framework, like in Python, it'd be like PyTest. You can run these whole set of tests in a few seconds and it'll tell you if, if anything's changed. And it's, it's harder in UI code, that's my really that's my problem is testing UI stuff. So it's you know the the less you can have as UI that has to be tested by a human, the better. The next article is an Atari Sketchpad by Todd Mowbray of Burlington, Ontario. It's basically a set of, sh- of shortcut commands that allow you to like plot, draw to, erase, clear screen kind of stuff where you can create some graphics and then it'll spit out some like list of commands that that duplicate what you draw on, drew on the screen. The next article is Build Your Own Computer Friend by Fred Dignazio. It's kind of like an article about how to build sort of an Eliza-style like computer responder thingy. It's going to be uh, the next several issues as well. So it looks like, looks like it's going to be in basic, and he's kind of asking here for suggestions about what kind of computer friend slash pet slash whatever that they're going to build. The next article is Guess That Animal Simulated Learning in Computers, which is kind of like a little guessing game in basic. It's uh, by Daniel Hasty of Garland, Texas. It claims that the computer will remember its previous responses, so it will get, like, smarter. It looks like it's building, like, decision trees. It's got pet and Atari versions. It's not a very long program. It's two columns of basic, so it looks like a hundred and some or so lines of basic. The next interesting thing is a review of Basic A Plus by Charles Brannon. So Basic A Plus is from Optimized Systems Software, I believe. Yes. Same people that wrote Atari Basic, and it's upward compatible with Atari Basic which means stuff that's written in Atari Basic will also run in Basic A+, but it's not the other way around. So it goes over a bunch of the commands that it's been that have been added to the language and a lot of new features, like direct access to hardware stuff, like joystick trigger values, uh, player missile graphics. They've got D-poke and D-peak to do simulated 16-bit peak and poke commands and says it runs notably faster than, than regular Atari Basic. Interestingly, it said OSS sold Basic A Plus for the Apple. So that's, yeah, I'd never heard of that. It says it retailed for $80, and Basic A Plus was only disc-based, no cartridge for this. Next, we reach part two of the Atari Video Graphics and the new GTIA by Craig Chamberlain of Birmingham, Michigan. It says the three-part series is part two, how to get 
256 colors out of your Atari, it says. goes over the color registers and then the color values, you know, set color. There's 16 different values for the set color. Now there's 16 luminances for each color as well, so that's the 256. talks about the GTI mode, the 16 colors per screen modes. So it says you can either increase the pixel size or increase, increase the display memory to get all those colors on the screen at once. And it's, he says, because Antic has a limit on how much memory it can access during one scan line, we have a limit to the amount of memory that can be devoted to the screen. Therefore, resolution will have to suffer. So the GTI modes are, you know, four graphics, eight pixels wide, and then, you know, one scan line tall. And it goes over a bit of technical detail about how the Antic doesn't really care which GTI mode is being used. It's just, it, it spits out the same, like, bits, regardless of which high-resolution mode it uses. So it's the GTIA that processes the video signal. And so you set which mode you do. You want the GTIA to display by the hardware register prior, which is D01B. Only a few bits in that register are used, so the top two bits, so bit 6 and bit 7, are used. If they're 0, then it's the normal mode 8. If bit 6 only is 1, then it's mode 9. If bit 7 only is 1, then it's mode 10. And if both bits 6 and 7 are 1, then it's mode 11. So mode 9 is the one color 16 luminance mode, so the shades of a single color. Mode 11 is the 16 color mode, but they're all the same luminance. And then mode 10 is the one where you can sort of pick your own colors, but there's only enough registers to set colors for eight of them, plus the background, so nine, I guess. And the other seven colors are just repeats of the other color registers. From basic, it uses four of the player missile colors, and you can't set those directly using a set color command for basic, so you had to use the pokes to do that. It says there are incompatibility issues between the CTIA and GTIA. I mean, obviously, of course, the, you know, modes, the new modes, 9, 10, and 11, can't be used on the CTIA, but the computer would display it just fine. It would just display it in graphics 8, so you get all these bit patterns and stuff. But additionally, it says the, the, the GTIA uses a half color clock shift, so the artifacting colors are different. And he says they did that so that the play field and the players would overlap perfectly. Whereas, he says, with a CTIA, it didn't. He says in the article here he doesn't think it's possible for the computer to tell if it's got a CTIA or GTIA in it. I'm not sure about that. I'll have to do some research, you know, programmatically if you can tell which which is which. You know, there's a test you can do. You can just visually, as the end user, there's a test that you can... He gives the example in basic. If you poke 623,64 while at the normal, uh, you know, default mode zero, then if you have the GTIA, the screen turns black. Otherwise, there's no change, and you'll know you have the CTIA. But whether or not you can find out using a program, I'm not sure, and I have to look that one up. He also mentions that there's problems with earlier codes if they just indiscriminately set the G prior register without masking off the top two bits, then you might get some like inadvertent uses of mode 9, mode 10, or mode 11 when, you're, when you intend to be in mode 8. He says, all new Atari computers are being shipped with a GTA at no extra cost at this point. You can get your CTIA replaced, so it's not soldered in, so you can just pop it in and pop it out. I remember hearing you could just get it from your Atari dealer and do it yourself directly, or you can have a repair shop do it for you. And so next month, apparently, we'll get some programs that test the GTIA. Next, we come to an article, Animation and Player Missile Graphics, by Tom Salk and Sid Meier of Baltimore. You may have heard of Sid Meier before. This is the very same Sid Meier that did a bunch of flight simulators that I remember on the Atari, like Hellcat Ace, Spitfire Ace, and one of the best ones, F-15 Strike Eagle before moving on to stuff like Civilization and Railroad Tycoon, you know, for other lesser future systems like the PC. So here the authors are talking about using separate images as, like, animation. So, like, a and their example is a person walking. 
So there's different frames of animation, and as you cycle through them, it looks like the person is walking, and you change the sort of x-coordinate as the shape animates, and then you can actually get the walking effect going across the screen. So little demo programs in BASIC and then the machine language subroutine that is uh, not actually listed, they have a bunch of data statements that use the BASIC program pokes in, but it uses the vertical blank to change the animation state. The text of the article covers four full pages, and it's the listing is another page, so it's a, it's a very detailed article. It's, it's one that I would have poured over a bunch when I was reading this back then. The next article is Machine Language Shreds and Patches by Jim Butterfield of Toronto, or Toronto, I guess. It talks about techniques to patch your code without reassembling because he mentions just how difficult it is to reassemble an entire program, you know, if it's spread across multiple files and it just takes a while. So he also talks about using like no-op instructions to give yourself some room as you potentially debug some things. The next Atari article is a substring search utility by Edward C. Smith in a city in Pennsylvania that's much easier to pronounce than the one in the last magazine. This is Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The article mentions that Basic A plus has an instruction called find, which is a, used to find substrings within a, a, a longer string. But that Atari Basic doesn't have that, and so this is sort of a combination Basic driver and machine language like subroutine to make this feature available to Atari Basic. And in a little bit of serendipity, we'll see a similar thing in the Micro magazine that we come to a little bit later in the podcast. Here's the Inside Atari column by Bill Wilkinson, Optimized System Software, Cupertino, California. It includes a Basic program, a simple bouncing ball demo. And then includes a similar program in assembly language. And so the basic program is, what, 20 lines long. And the assembly language program spreads over six pages. But it's cool the way you set it up because essentially the machine language program is, is a transliteration of the basic program. So for each basic statement, he puts a comment in the assembly language source and then proceeds to write out the assembly language that's the, sort of the equivalent of that basic statement. So it's a really cool way to sort of bridge the knowledge gap between basic and assembly language to see, you know, how much more involved an assembly language program is than a basic program. I've done that before, too. In the program Fujirun that I made for Kansas Fest one year, I prototyped the whole thing in Python and then brought it into assembly language. And for each Python statement, I just made that a comment and then tried to do the equivalent stuff in assembly. It was a much faster, I think, more efficient way to write an assembly language program than to just start from scratch in assembly language and try to debug all your logic there. So you debug the logic in the, the high-level language and then made it run fast by bringing the equivalent statements into the low-level language. There's an article, System Clock for the Atari by Bill Zimmerman of Littleton, Colorado. It puts a little digital clock on the screen, regardless of what's going on in BASIC, it says. So it's a little machine language program that is not actually called out. It's just a bunch of data statements that you type in. But you run this program and then it, has, it becomes like a resident clock that stays on the screen. We're sort of nearing the end of the magazine now. There's some. Uh, there's an ad for the Compute Books. There's a Compute's first book of Atari, and inside Atari DOS. In the new product section, they mention a game called Starship Duel, which looks like sort of a space war kind of clone. Two ships shooting each other. Doesn't mention if there's gravity around a star or something. I don't know why this is particularly noteworthy enough to warrant to mention, because it doesn't seem like it's a hugely influential program. And also in this section, it mentions fabric covers are available for your Atari. It says they're designed to provide a high-quality alternative to loose-fitting vinyl covers and provide I.O. port access. $9.95 for the 800 and $8.95 for the 400 model covers. And finally, on the back cover, wouldn't you know it, William Shatner is still here. Ah, big sigh. All right, we'll move on to the last of the big four here. This is Creative Computing, August 1982, Volume 8, Number 8, 2 bucks ninety-five on the cover price. Have my copy right here. And I want to get better about remembering to do this, is to figure out how many pages are in it. I should be doing that with all these. It's about 260 pages. 
So yeah, I'm trying to remember to do that for future magazines to give you the page count. It's a silver background on the cover with sort of blue lettering for the creative computing text, the number one magazine of computer applications and software, it says. The picture is like a sort of CRT tube-shaped green background with uh, Darth Vader on the front typing on computer keys. And it's a flat keyboard. It's not a... It's not the Atari 400. It's a definitely looks like some sort of you know membrane keyboard. Maybe the Odyssey. Didn't the Odyssey have a keyboard? I don't know. But Darth Vader with big old gloves trying to type on a membrane keyboard must be the worst. I mean, besides the fact that would make you like a murderous, force choking, burned, half human cyborg evil person. But apart from that, yeah, typing on the keyboard would be the worst. On the little sash in the corner, it says "40 new games, in-depth evaluation." So yeah, we'll be looking at this magazine quite a bit. Lots of good stuff here. It says 11 joysticks, don't play games without one. Game designers tell how they do it. 10 complete games for IBM, Apple, Pet, TRS-80, and others. And they put Atari in the others category? Come on. Adventure games, more graphics, greater challenge. And then some other stuff. Apple graphics, second in a series. Uh, there's an article on writing effectively, apparently. What's new from the West Coast Computer Fair? And then columns. It says new products, Apple, Atari, IBM, Pet, Books, I.O. And while I have my paper copy of the magazine, it's... I found it almost more efficient to go through using the you know the PDFs from archive.org while I'm sitting here recording. I mean, I like reading the magazines just you know, kicking back in a chair or something, but in terms of actually recording the podcast, it's easier to actually to do it on the screen. So I will set my magazine down right now, pop, and now I'm looking at the PDF version. So there we go. So in the table of contents, it has the big section on games, Apple Arcade games, Atari Arcade games, Nemesis slash Dungeon Master, fantasy role-playing game for CPM, probably won't cover that one. Atari Graphic Adventures, worth a thousand words. We will look at that one. There's the article on game controllers. It says joysticks, paddles, and game port extenders. List some articles. And there's one here uh, written by Chris Crawford about Eastern Front, a narrative history that we'll look in depth to. It says computer games, a new art form, and a style manual for software authors. In the applications and software section, it lists these 10 games they were talking about on the cover, and none of them say they're for the Atari. As we get there, we'll look and see if they have uh, like Atari versions or hints to convert it to the Atari. And in the departments, they have the Outpost Atari, and it says, A Look at Atari DOS. So the first article we come to is Apple Arcade Games by David H. All. And so it shows a bunch of Apple Arcade games. There's Congo, which looks like, like some sort of Frogger-type game. Copts and Robbers, C-O-P-T-S, which is a play on words since this is a Egyptian pyramid maze game. It says, an engrossing adventure game for children, in its summary. This game called Cycloid, which is a, some snake-smashing game, which says, novel theme, highly addictive. Dueling Digits, an arcade educational game. It says, stimulating action coupled with excellent educational value. It's like these digits mar- marching around in some operands, you know, plus-minus multiplication division, you have to, like, match them all together. Escape, a strategy game. Gold Rush, which is some sort of freeform collectum kind of game. The Human Fly, which is like Crazy Climber clone. Juggler, which looks like some sort of like Clowns and Balloons kind of game. Labyrinth, which is a really big Pac-Man maze. Micro Golf, which is like sort of a putt-putt golf kind of game. A game called Peeping Tom, which is not what it sounds like it might be about. It's some space alien game. I don't know, the description is very vague. There's Pegasus 2, and this is one I remember playing. This is a kind of a scramble clone. This is one of the very first games I ever saw on the Apple II. Which is kind of why I'm going through this whole Apple II article, because I wanted to see if I recognized some of the games. And this is this game I remember, you know, sneaking into the computer lab at school, and then there was a kid who had an Apple II who I didn't really know all that well, but I ingratiated myself to get invited over to his house a couple times, and I played this game. There's Fotar, which looks like a centipede sort of game. 
Night Mission Pinball from Sublogic. I do know that was available on the Atari. Roach Hotel, which is about what it sounds like. Smashing Roaches. Star Blaster, which is an arcade-style game that kind of looks like a sort of sideways Galaxian. Star Clones, which is a kind of a ripoff on Star Wars, some scenes from Star Wars, it looks like. It has hilariously generic names for these settings from Star Wars, like one is Attack of the Metal Monster Clones, which is the Adat Walker scene from Empire Strikes Back. There's a game called Suicide, which appears to be kind of like a Kaboom sort of clone. Taxman, which is a Pac-Man sort of, sort of ripoff. Tumblebugs, which we also got on the Atari. We had a pretty good clone on the Atari, actually. And then surprise, in the middle of these Apple reviews, we got a review of Ghost Gobbler for the TR-80 color computer, which, as the name suggests, is a clone of Pac-Man. Then we get Starblazer, which was available on the Atari as Skyblazer, and apparently the same author, Tony Suzuki, did both versions. And I checked out Skyblazer on the Atari, and it looks like it's more of a straight port. It looks like it wasn't using player missile graphics, so the scrolling is very sort of kind of what you would expect from Apple scrolling. It's like where you can see the the stuff on the bottom, the houses and the targets on the bottom that you're trying to destroy. You can see them being erased and redrawn. It's kind of like a, also kind of like a scramble clone as well, where you're flying a little jet fighter and you have things you got to shoot. It's interesting though, it seems to have like individual missions that you have to go on, unlike Scramble, which is kind of like a, you know, never ending scrolling tunnel. It's not a bad game on the Atari. I'll have to revisit it when I can get a joystick set up because I was playing with a keyboard and it's just not the same, a keyboard. And I don't know, I, the CX80 style joysticks or the one, you know, the Wicos that I have are better. I always enjoy the game more playing with those kind of joysticks than on the keyboard emulated joystick. There's Twerps, which I don't think was available on the Atari. I sort of remember it as kind of like a Space Invader sort of, sort of game. There's a game called Swashbuckler, which I sort of, I think I may have seen, but I may be confusing with Aztec. It's where these, like, tall figures are kind of crudely animated. Aztec, I know, was available on the Atari, but I don't know that Swashbuckler was. It's a game called Microwave, which is a Pac-Man sort of style maze game, but it looks like there's more stuff, and stuff happens to the maze as well. And finally here in this Apple section is Bug Attack, which looks like it's a centipede sort of clone. So each one of these, you know, it might be, they might average a column or so of text describing the game. And they all have a little kind of rectangle saying, you know, the name, the type of game, what system it requires, mostly Apple, the language it was written in, and the summary. And the summaries are always positive. They did not, in any, all these things, they did not find any games with a bad summary. And here we come to a review of just Atari games. This is not just fun and games by John Anderson. He reviews four games. The first is Protector. And I'll go into a little more detail on these reviews here. It's uh, in the little box, the call-out, it says, uh, it's an arcade game, system requirements are uh, 32K, formats either cassette or disc, machine language, summary, it's compelling and addictive, price twenty nine ninety five, and manufactured by Synapse. So Protector is like a so kind of a defender sort of game, it's a wide-scrolling playfield object is to rescue people and bring them to like the far end, but you can only carry like one person at a time, and so you have to like go back and forth. And I find the scrolling challenging because it seems like you always, you have to go very far to the end of the screen in order to scroll, so it's hard to see what's coming next. It's quite a smooth scrolling game, though. I mean, it's well done. Uh, Protector 2, I think, is a little bit better, but that's not reviewed here. The same author, Mike Potter, has also written a game called Chicken, which is also like a Kaboom-style game. You have these eggs being dropped from the top of the screen and use a paddle to catch the eggs before they fall. It only requires 16K on cassette or disc. The summary is silly but fun. Kids will love it. Price twenty nine ninety five. Also from Synapse. Threshold is the next game. It's uh requires forty k. It's only available on disc. It's from Sierra Online, and the summary is best alien shootout to date. 
and it's pretty much a straight port of the Apple version, which means no player missiles and artifacting graphics in uh, Graphics Mode 8, or Antic F, basic Graphics Mode 8. And finally is a review of Mask Attack. This is by John Harris from Online Systems. Requires 32K. It's only available on disc. The summary is another maze game, but can make your nose twitch. So I don't know if that's supposed to be positive or negative? The review itself is positive, but that summary is like, I'm not sure. It's kind of a Pac-Man game, except you are a plumber, and you have to put water pipes down through this maze for some reason, and you've disturbed a bunch of rodents, and they're attacking you. It says one of the differences between this and a Pac-Man-style game is you have some traps that you can lay down. So this is John Harris, the same author of Jawbreaker, which we've talked about in Episode 5. So this is his follow-up. Actually, I'm not sure if maybe Frogger was between this and Mouse Attack. I'm not sure. But anyway, he's a obviously very talented author of games for the Atari. And the review, ultimately, yeah, is, is positive. It says Mouse Attack has a lot of staying power. And in addition, it offers a simultaneous two-player game, which that's always fun. The next article is this uh, Nemesis slash Dungeon Master, which is a fantasy role-playing game for CPM. And so I, I've never really thought about CPM games, but of course, you know, CPM ran Zork and all the text adventures. So I'm assuming this is a text adventure of some sort. Although actually it looks like it's a kind of like a roguelike, perhaps. Looks like they're drawing, using some text characters to draw little mazes and stuff. Next we come to Graphics Adventures on the Atari, Worth a Thousand Words by John Anderson. It's a review of some adventure games that also have graphic components. The first is Mission Asteroid, which it says is a space adventure, requires a 40k Atari with a disk drive. And it says, Introduction to a Series of Graphic Adventures by... This is Online Systems. So it's a text command, text adventure with a, with a two-word parser, it says. So it's like noun, verb. I guess verb, noun? Is that right? Get, whatever? Yeah, verb, noun. So it says it has over 100 pictures, so it must be using some drawing algorithm rather than like saving images to disk, because we don't have that much storage on, on our disks. So it's attend- intended to be an introduction, so it says the plot line is kept intentionally simple. And it says, as such, it would not really be entertaining without the pictures. The next is Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And this is a, it says, mapped style graphic adventure. It requires 32K. It's on disc only from quality software. As this is a rather famous game for sure. It's in, it's kind of like a turn-based graphic game because it makes you, you have to choose to move and then you can use the joystick to move the, the character. And I actually, I played it a little bit because I'd seen it, you know, so many times but never actually played it before. So I just, I fired it up a little bit ago. And it takes to get some getting used to, for sure. Looking at the screen, you would think it was like a real-time adventure, but it's not. And you use the directional commands of the joystick to decide if you're going to move or you're going to look at your inventory. And it's a, a well-liked game by a lot of people, for sure. The review says the game is immediately addictive and really tough. And it says the mastery requires the acquisition of some formidable skills. He says the game still seems impossible to me after several hours of trying. I mean, in my playing, I don't know that I would... Yeah, it would take some determination now to make it through because of the having experienced, you know, some real-time sort of games like Ultima, it would be hard to go back, I think, and get used to the turn-based style game. The next game is called Action Quest, which is uh, only requires 16k on cassette or disc. The summary is a unique attempt to merge two types of games. It's by JV Software for 29.95. This is more of a real-time game. It's a uh, it's described as a one-player arcade-style game within an adventure format. So you've got mazes and obstacle courses and sort of puzzles to solve sort of within each room. It says each room has a name, which gives the clues concerning what you need to do to, to get through it. It says you play against the clock, so this time element may, he said, lead to some replay value. 
This is perhaps the stretch to label it as an adventure game, but it's an exciting move in the right direction, he says. And at the end it says the author has indicated the sequel with greater challenges in the works, and it was indeed produced. It was called Ghost Encounters, and it was re-released later, apparently, with both Action Quest and Ghost Encounters on a, on a single cartridge called Castle Hassle. So that's the end of that article. The next article is called The Wizard, the Princess, and the Atari by Dave and Sandy Small, and it's reviewing a game of that name, The Wizard and the Princess. It says it's an adventure game with pictures, requires 40k of RAM on a double-sided disc. Summary is a very good adventure game with graphics, price $29.95 from online systems. The review starts out saying you, you it comes on a double-sided disc, you boot the disc without the cartridge, for the game is written entirely in 6502 machine code, and this is its first plus mark. One of the least endearing features of some programs is Atari Basic, one of the slowest executing languages ever developed. I had to laugh at that. They say the Wizard and the Princess runs very quickly and with minimal delay. It says the backside of the disk is where all the, the data files are, and that's not copy protected, so the instructions even recommend copying that. And it says even if you boot the backside of the disk, it starts a copy program that'll help you copy it to another side. Only the front side is copy protected. It doesn't really describe it. It's kind of, it looks like a text adventure with a graphic display. It doesn't describe the parser, although it looks like it's a simplistic, sort of maybe the two-word style parser. It says in terms of difficulty, they would rate it very high. It says up with some of Scott Adams' efforts. It'd be interesting to see what Kay and Carrington had to say about Scott Adams' adventures difficulty levels as compared to Infocom's adventures. I was kind of got the thought that they weren't as difficult. Maybe more limiting. I don't know. Would it be more limiting or less limiting with a two-word parser? It said they their family took four days to solve the game, and they said that's only because there were a lot of people contributing new ideas. It said one they said one person might need weeks to finish this adventure, and then then they devoted a whole column to a complaint. They said one big complaint and started out saying it's a subtle annoyance, but like most minor, minor irritants, however, it built up over time until it got to the point where you couldn't stand it anymore. So apparently, because there's a you know there's a four line text window at the bottom where all the the text goes because the rest of its graphics. You know, if, if you need to read a lot of text, it would pause in the middle and then waits for a return key press. But if you press any other key but return, you get a beep, and it says this is a particularly awful sound, which makes you suspect that the pokey sound chip is being flogged. And apparently part of the problem is, is that you're not quite sure if the text is done and that's all it had to say, or if there's another screen full of text. So trying to type something else like you would type a command, it gives you the beep. But apparently, yeah, it didn't say, you know, like, press return to continue or anything. It just, like, sitting there waiting for you. But that's the way they describe it anyway. So they were so frustrated, they said, they opened the computer and disconnected the speaker. And even supplied the instructions. It says, remove the five lower screws on the Atari, pull the speaker, plug off the jack, and reassemble. Well, after that speaker-destroying game, there's a review of a, an adventure for beginners by David Lubar. This is, I guess this is only for an Apple, isn't it? It's called Birth of the Phoenix. Yeah, just for an Apple. There's a review of two SSI games. SSI Marches On is the article by David Archibald. It's Napoleon's Campaigns, 1813 and 1815 is one game. And the other game is The Road to Gettysburg. And I never played any SSI games at all. SSI had any number of games for the Atari. The Atari Mania lists 57. But these two do not appear to have been ported to the Atari. Then we come to the article, Joysticks, Paddles, and Game Port Extenders. This is part one of three by David All. It says, for Apple and Atari... Although, clearly, the joysticks aren't compatible. Apple uses the potentiometer joystick. I guess Atari 5200 owners would kind of know what that is like. Most of the joysticks they tested were, actually, for the Apple. But they did test four Atari joysticks, one of which was the Atari joystick. 
So it's probably the best-known joystick in the industry. The Atari joystick has two main virtues. It is cheap and reasonably reliable. I guess for as cheap as it was, it did last a while. I mean, I certainly remember breaking my fair share of these, but they seem to last on the order of years, at least for me. What I remember about them is a really short throw, and disassembling them, you know, the center or stick part had like this sort of plastic frame, and it had little pins in four places around the the border at the base of this little frame that would push in these little dimples that would then make contact with the circuit and then complete the circuit and get you'd get that direction. What I remember happening is is that one of those little prongs would break or it's kind of like kind of if you think of like a kind of like a standalone coat rack, you know, a, a pole with like a base at the bottom with a little cross, you know, the shape of like a plus sign, there would be a little like pin on the end of, of each end of the plus that would push into the the dimple. And so that the either the leg or the pin or something would snap off. I remember when I graduated to like the Wicko stick with the leaf springs, I ended up using those almost exclusively after that. In their review here, it says the um, the joystick having the the button in the upper left-hand corner was definitely designed for right-handed players, which I know, but they also say the um, this was a joystick that had required the most force of all the other joysticks they tested. I'm sure the vast majority of people listening to this podcast know the CX-40, and I've used it in the past, and probably graduated onto other joysticks. One of the problems with the CX-40 I particularly remember is trying to get the diagonal directions because it did take so much force, it was hard to get both of the little dimples pressed at the same time and other sticks solve that using, you know, leaf switches or micro switches or something. So for the three other joysticks they review, uh, the first is the Zircon Video Command, which it says is based on the Channel F controller. And the text here, it says, remember the Fairchild Channel F video game unit? Everyone liked the joysticks. The Channel F didn't survive, but the joysticks did, and Zircon bought them. So this is like a handheld unit, like a grip that you'd hold in one hand, and the joystick was on the top. It was a small little joystick. They don't have the scale here, but based on the size of the 9-pin connector, it looks like, you know, a much smaller actual movable part than the Atari stick. They said they found it to be an outstanding replacement for the Atari joystick. Its short positive throw coupled with the built-in firing button makes it a good choice. They said the drawback is it's not self-centering so that Pac-Man and games like that aren't as good to play. They said it was list price of $14.95. They said the Atari CX-40 list price was $13.95, although it was discounted uh, quite often. They also review the Newport Pro Stick, which is made from HAP arcade parts. It's a leaf spring joystick. It's quite big, and it, according to the little table here at the end of the article, it says it was designed to be used as a tabletop joystick, so you'd sit it out, down on the table and instead of holding it with your hand. They were quite positive about it, apart from the firing button, which they said was a longer throw and harder to press than other joysticks. And the last joystick they cover is the Listic, which we talked about before. It's the Mercury Switch-based joystick, which is the one that you control by tilting it. So it looks just like a handle grip with a button on the top, and you input directions by simply tilting the grip itself. The Mercury inside the little Mercury switches connects the circuit just by based on how it's far it's tilted. They said their testers had no middle-of-the-road opinions. They either loved it or they hated it, and that they found it t- took some getting used to, and either they quickly just abandoned it and went back to conventional joysticks, or they really loved it. So the Listic was the most expensive of the group. It lists for $39.95. And the HAP, or I guess the Pro Stick, was $34.95. The next article is Computer Games, A New Art Form by Mark Bernstein. And it's kind of an article about why people write computer games and how to write computer games and what to use when designing a computer game. He says, games are fun because learning is fun. People play bridge and chess and they watch tennis and baseball for the joy of facing and solving a problem. We all long to call the brilliant play, resolve the dilemma, outthink the competition, or drive in the winning run. 
says we play games to experience new situations or gain insight and skill, to live in new places, to taste imaginary dangers. Since people love to play, it is only natural that they use their computers to play. The computer combines the virtues of prose and painting, film, and music. It represents a new and powerful medium for artistic expression. As in any art, and with any medium, the artist must know and understand the rules of grammar and the conventions of composition. What makes a work of art intelligible and accessible to its audience? This is the fundamental problem of literary criticism. In the following, I will address a few suggestions to the programmer slash artist. And so the remainder of the article is about just this, like, sort of high-level ideas about how to develop games. And I'll go over each little, little heading. The first one is finding game ideas. It says, look for game ideas in likely and unlikely places. You can fly a jetliner or a glider. You can fly as a seagull, searching for food, conserving your strength, and avoiding storms and predators. It said you could be a nuclear engineer, a medieval cathedral builder, an Egyptian shipwright. A game can be built on the foundation of any interesting problem. Next heading is make choices plentiful and important. Basically, he's saying you have to give the player just the right amount of choice, not too much or not too little. Basically, balance the number of choices with the importance of each. This next se- section is neatness counts. Kind of just like, in general, kind of proofreading stuff. But also, he says, avoid letting your computer make mistakes that no human would make. So don't design dumb computer opponents. Also kind of leads into testing, saying like, check every command and make sure the player can correct impossible or illegal requests, or presumably flag them if something like that happens before like it gets into actual production. Then next, use the appropriate speed. So again, don't be too fast or too slow. Then adjust as the player learns. So don't make it too difficult or too easy at the beginning. And then sort of ramp up appropriately as the game goes on. Select a role for the computer. So this is, I guess, if your computer going to have a computer opponent, you should have a consistent and plausible personality. The next section is violence. He says, always think about your subject. Ask yourself, how should the player feel about all this? He says, violence and war are both terrible and fascinating. There are already many programs about combat, and there'll be many more. I'm looking for ideas. Remember that war is not the only or the best game. He says, if you're going to do a war game, Give your audience a feel for war as it really happens, not the sterile, prissy way that newsreels and propagandas say, but war where knives slide through bone and flesh and fires burn into the night. I guess saying, you know, let your player see the consequences of the action. And I suppose not to glorify it. Violence. He goes on, avoid gratuitous violence. If you want to teach your audience about ballistic trajectories, baseballs or jumping fish are every bit as satisfactory as artillery shells. Don't hide real violence because it is ugly but try not to add ugliness to a world which already has its share. In summary, he says, computer games will outlast the temporary glamour of their novelty. Eventually, they may become a new branch of literature. Great writing requires inspiration and genius. We may hope to achieve it, but it cannot be commanded. Competent, literate games are needed to satisfy an audience which is constantly growing and changing. A program should be useful. It should teach us or relieve us of the tedious and dull work. A program should be robust. Nothing is worse than a program that constantly crashes. And a good program, any good program, should be fun. So I quite enjoyed reading that article. There's a lot of of detail in there, and there's certainly more that I didn't cover. So that's definitely worth a read in in full. Continuing on that theme, the next few articles are going to be about game design. This next one is Game Design 10% Inspiration, 90% Perspiration by David All and Betsy Staples. And this is an interview with three Activision designers, Alan Miller, Steve Cartwright, and Carol Shaw. And they start off asking Alan Miller, where does the idea for a game come from? And he said, you think for a couple of weeks, and after that you come up with an idea you're happy with, and you begin to pursue it. And that's when the real work starts. So then they quiz him about his game tennis for the BCS, the 2600 that he designed. 
And he said it took him two weeks of intense work just to create the display with, he said, the limited capabilities of the VCS, which are certainly well documented. Then he spent 10 or 12 weeks working on the playability and polishing the game. He said that part of the design process is essentially an editing function. You expand on the good features and eliminate the bad ones. And then for the VCS particularly, there was a problem of space. So tennis was a 2K game, which seems like impossible to fit any game, especially one for the VCS where you're essentially drawing every single line by yourself in a what they call a kernel, to fit that in 2K. He said he did a lot of scrunching, I compressed my code, optimized it for space, and was able to put in five running graphics for the players and several different pictures of a swinging racket. That's still, yeah, still just astounding what they could fit into VCS cartridges. Next, they talked to Steve Cartwright, the author of uh, Barnstorming, and they talked a little about, about his background working at National Semiconductor with David Crane, who eventually brought him to Activision. And then they asked him what it was like to come to, up to speed on the VCS. He said his fellow Activision programmers helped him get up to speed because they had all this knowledge, you know, that they had when the original 4 came over from Atari. But apparently he didn't know machine language until he started doing VCS games. He said the main difficulty they have with the VCS is the low-level access they need to control the video hardware. And yeah, I got another crazy thing about the VCS that, you know, they have to draw every line, like, as the electron beam is scanning over it. So the amount of precise control you have to have for each individual instruction is just insane. About barnstorming in particular, they asked how he developed the idea, and he said the idea came to him in about two seconds, and it took him three months to translate that into a playable game. He says, we're constantly coming up with and rejecting ideas. We find ourselves imagining everything we see around us as a video game. And it just happened that it was possible to translate the idea of barnstorming into a game. Then they talked to Carol Shaw and how her interest was in computer opponents. So she said she's always been interested in making the computer intelligent, because that's something you cannot get from a board game. And she wrote checkers for Activision and said that some of the routines used in the program were based on work done in the 50s by somebody named Arthur Samuels and an algorithm called alpha-beta pruning. She said it hasn't changed all that much in these years, and the major improvements really have been the speeds of the processors. So even though this article applied to the VCS, it was still interesting. And yeah, it just reinforces how difficult the VCS is to program, even compared with contemporary systems. You know, the 800 is so much more easy to program than the VCS. Then we come to another great article, Eastern Front, A Narrative History by Chris Crawford. So up front, I gotta say, I, you know, I've read a lot of Chris Crawford's stuff. He's always come across to me as kind of arrogant, I guess. And as we'll see, there's several places in this article that, uh, that might allow one to reinforce that perspective. I doubt that's a valid perspective, you know, in a generalization anyway. Um, yeah, I'm loath to label him as arrogant, you know, having never met him, talked to him. Yeah, I know that. I, it's just sort of the, how do I say, perspective I've picked up from reading enough of his stuff. So I was kind of going into the, into the article with that kind of perspective, and I'm going to work hard, hard to try not to allow that to sort of color what I have to say, because I think he's a very insightful person. And while he, I think, to my perspective, sort of like, you know, makes himself up to be this, you know, very smart person. He also is not shy about telling you when he thinks he made mistakes. And in full disclosure, I think I'm, I tend to be kind of a judgmental person about this in particular, since I'm sort of a, um, a quiet person by nature and people who I see dominating the room with, you know, their talk or, you know, in this case, I've never seen him talk. I just imagine this is what he would be like. You know, me all my life struggling to have my voice heard when somebody just takes over the room. It, yeah, I have this negative perception. So I'm trying not to influence the reading of this article through that voice in my head. And yet I find it interesting that the second sentence of this article sort of hits, you know, all my buttons. 
So the first sentence, he says, a common misperception among non-programmers is that a program is a static product, something that springs complete from the hand of the programmer. And then here we go. What they do not realize is that a truly original program like Eastern Front 1941 does not leap out of the programmer's mind and into the computer. So, like, yes, reinforcing my beliefs? I don't know. But I think what he really means to say is that, you know, programming is difficult and an original piece of software that's, you know, stuff that's not built from anything is quite a difficult task. And that he's talking about himself, I guess, is the, the reason that sort of my bells and whistles are going off. But he says, really, the any program is an evolution from the initial idea to the final product. And this article is essentially the definitive history of Eastern Front. He said it originated as a, something called um, in a terrible Russian accent, which apparently means hooray for the motherland, which I, looks like it was maybe a text adventure. He doesn't describe much about the mechanics of this particular game, except that it was written in Pet Basic. And he said he quickly realized he had a dog on his hands and then just shelved it. He said it was dull, confusing, and slow. And he said he'd come back to it sometime and start over with a fresh outlook. So that apparently was in June of 1979. And in the intervening 15 months, he said he went to work for Atari, first for the VCS and then on the home computer. And he saw a demo written in 1980 by Ed Rotberg of the scrolling capabilities of the Atari. And that sort of brought his old game back to his mind. He thought that the scrolling technology would be the ideal demonstration platform for this. So he says, game design is an art, not engineering. And so I took many long walks alone at nights, sorting through my thoughts and trying to formulate my vision of the game clearly. He got out all his old notes and thought about what it would be like as a person playing it. Like what would the person experience and what would they think and feel about? He said this whole time he didn't write anything down. It was all just him thinking about it. Then finally, he said January, which must be January 81 now. He had a vision, so he wrote a one-page description, and he said this original description turned out to be a pretty accurate representation of what he ended up turning out. From there, he started coding, and he said he proceeded slowly. He documented all the steps carefully and wrote the code conservatively. He says he didn't want to trap himself with inflexible code at this early stage. He knew early on it was going to be a big chunk of code, so he split it up into modules and redesigned some of the early stuff that he'd written for the scrolling to give it like a better structure. So by this time, he said it was early February, and he had set a target of July. There was a there was a war game convention that he wanted to demo this at. So he first worked on the display, the uh, and then the input. And if you've seen Eastern Front, you know, it's all graphical control, and so you move over the scrolling map and you give commands to individual units. And he wanted to do it originally entirely with the joystick, but then he he said his first real headache came when he tried to with the input routines. He only wanted to use the start button to begin a move, and he didn't want to use the keyboard at all, but then he figured that he couldn't find a better way to cancel any of the orders that he'd given using just joystick control, so he had to end up using the space bar as well. He said his next problem was with displaying the orders that each unit would get, and he said he had no end of problems here. My original idea had been to use player missile graphics to draw some kind of dotted path that would show the planned route, but unfortunately there weren't enough players and missiles to do it properly. And he said the solution I eventually came up with, after considerable creative agony, is a system now used, the moving arrow that shows the path of the unit. Says this takes a little longer, but the animation effect is nice. By the time he got to March, he said he was considering the pace he needed to actually make the convention in uh, July. At this point, he thought the schedule had enough room in it that it would give him some time to deal with unexpected problems. So at this point in March, he said the input routines were done, and it's time to take care of the, what he called the mainline module, which is like, I guess, the map and how to deal with the map. And he said the first problem developed with the freezing of rivers and swamps during the winter, and that he wasn't able to figure out an easy way to do this, so he said he just had to brute force it. He said the result was impressive, but I'm not sure I did the right thing. It caused me a week of effort and a lot of RAM. 
which at the time seemed inconsequential because he was planning on making a 48k game. And he said later, when he chose to drop it down to 16k, he found himself cramped for space, and that the expenditure of 120 bytes began to look wasteful. He said the next task was movement execution, and this went extremely well, and he thought it might take him two weeks, but it only took him one. So he was quite pleased with himself. He said, I was hot. And then as March ended, he was working on the combat routines, and he encountered severe problems, he said. He uncovered severe conceptual problems with the system that he had based on his previous work on the pet. But he was able to figure out those problems by, instead of resolving battles immediately, to have them stretch over a certain amount of time. By early April, he said he was into his last major stage, which is the artificial intelligence routine. He said, this module frightened me for I was unsure how to handle it. Looking back, I cannot believe I invested so much time in this project in the blithe expectation that the artificial intelligence routines would work out properly. I threw myself into them with naive confidence. So he said his original routines from his pet code wouldn't work, likely because the battle situations wouldn't be resolved in the same way that they would stretch out over more time. So he said a new algorithm was required, and after many false starts, I came up with the current scheme, which he said he was quite proud of because it was, it was quite flexible, he said. So by now it's mid-May, it's six months had passed since he'd begun. He said one evening rather late, I finished work on the artificial intelligence routine and prepared to play the game for the first time. He said many, many times I'd put up the game to test the performance of the code, but this was the first time I was bringing it up solely to assess the overall design, and within ten minutes, I knew I had a turkey on my hands. The game was dull and boring, it took too much time to play, it didn't seem to hang together conceptually, and the Russians played a very stupid game. So he calls this the crisis stage. He said, I remember that night very well. I shut off the machine and went for a long walk. It was time to do some hard thinking. The first question was, can the game be salvaged? Are the problems with this game superficial or fundamental to the design? So he decided there were four problems. There were too many units for the player. It required too long to play. It was just a slugfest with little opportunity for interesting ploys for the Germans. And the Russians were too stupid. So his target was still this convention in July. And then he had to decide, should he try to force it there? Or should he just postpone and redesign the whole game? And so here we go to my initial thing at the beginning of this article. He says, That was a long night. One thing kept my faith, my egotism. Most good programmers are egomaniacs, and I am no exception. When the program looked hopeless, and the problems seemed insurmountable, one thing kept me going. The absolute certainty that I was so brilliant that I could solve any problem. And, I don't know, do I just say QED here? I don't know. And, of course, you can disagree with the premise of his argument that all good programmers are egomaniacs, which, of course, I don't think is true. I've done software development mostly my whole professional life, and the best ones were the ones willing to share and talk about stuff and collaborate. There's the myth of what is it, the 10x developer, you know, the one person that can do 10 times a normal programmer. And I guess there have been, you know, enough people like the one that comes to mind immediately is John Carmack, you know, the guy responsible for most of the graphics engines from id Software, you know, with the Commander Keen games, which I've never seen or played actually, but then, of course, Doom and into Quake and stuff. I suppose there are, you know, genius-level programmers in any field. I don't know what it is about game design that tends to have this image of the, you know, sort of the lone wolf genius programmer. You know, in this era, I guess, you know, the early 80s, games were designed by a single person. And so, I don't know, maybe, are we back? Did I just make a circular argument? Back to the article, he does say that only the most egotistical of programmers refuses to listen to the I can't do it, and presses on to do things which neither he nor anybody else thought possible. But in so doing, he faces many lonely nights staring at the ceiling, wondering if maybe this time he has finally bitten off more than he can chew. But he goes on and describes how he's chewing that bite. First, he said he reduced the scale of the program. Then he reduced the projected playing time from 12 hours to more like 3 hours. Then he drastically transformed the entire game, he said, by introducing zones of control, which are where the units sort of interact with each other. And then because of the redesign, it says the Russian stupidity was suddenly less important because the existing logic would kind of adapt itself with these 
new zones of control where they could interact a little bit. Then he said his third major change was to introduce uh, logistics, like supply considerations. And he said that alone made a big change in the game. Sort of, It allowed the Germans to cripple the Russian units with movement instead of combat, which would seem to underscore the Russian stupidity, as he called it, in his game design logic. But maybe the zones in control balanced that out. At any rate, he said it was about this time when he committed to producing it on a, for, to run on a 16K system. He said initially he didn't want to constrain himself into something that small, but he had enough experience, he said, developing on the Kim, which only had 1K of RAM, and then the, later on the Pet that had 8K and later 16K. So essentially his training kind of gave him that ability to do that almost like for free. He said in his last mad rushes here, the structure of the program went to hell. He said he was confident what he was doing, but he was willing to trade the structure for the time. He said his first beta test version to playtesters was in mid-June, and he said he began the huge task of polishing the game. He made it to the convention on July 3rd and said that was version number 272. He said it was a complete game and playable and even seemed to be enjoyable, but it was not yet ready for release. Then at this publishing stage, he called it, the temptation to release is strong, but the programmer will spurn the temptation and continue polishing his creation until he knows that it is ready to be released. He said it took him six additional weeks, and at this stage he ended up rewriting the zone of control routine to speed it up and take less memory, and then he said he made numerous adjustments to the Russian artificial intelligence routines to make them play better. And hey, you're killing me here, Chris? He said, during this time, playtesters were making their own suggestions for the game, and playtesters are difficult to use properly. At least 90% of the suggestions they make are useless or stupid. It's like, dude. He says, this is because they do not share the vision that the designer has, so they try to take the game in very different directions. Well, okay, I'll grant you that. But saying yeah, useless or stupid is a little bit harsh. He tries to redeem it somewhat, saying the tremendous value of the playtesters lies in that small 10% that represents valuable ideas. He says, no designer can think of everything, and that everyone will build personal quirks into a game that can only hurt the design. The playtesters will catch those. The good designer must have the courage to reject the bad 90% and the wisdom to accept the good 10%. It's a tough business. Okay, dude. You are a strong programmer, but I will grant you the egotism. He said he delivered the final product to Dale Yoakum at APX at the end of August. It was version number 317. He said he wasn't able to embark on a new project for 10 weeks. I was completely burned out. I do not regret burning myself out in this way. Anything less would not have been worth the effort. So yeah, an amazing article there. A lot of good stuff to take from it. You know, egotism notwithstanding. He obviously knows what he's doing. And to be able to write this up is a sort of testament to the not only the ability he has as a designer, but as someone who communicate, can communicate ideas. The next article is in the same vein. It's a style manual for authors of software. What is it? 26 tips for developing. In this case, it's mostly like text-based software, but it's kind of like guidelines. It says guidelines used by the, the Lawrence Hall of Science, whatever that is. Oh, it's part of UC Berkeley. So it talks about how to set up your, pro- how to structure your program code, what to do on like screens as you're asking for input. But yeah, as I mentioned, it was mostly for text-based, in this case, educational software, so not so much for game writing. Next article is Dive Bomber by Richard Todd. It's a AppleSoft basic program. Looks like kind of a Canyon Bomber program for the high-res screen, but there's no Atari basic conversion tips. It's just Apple only. It's not a super long program. Looks like less than 100 lines, and that they could do that much in high-res graphics is pretty impressive. Next is the an article by David All, the 7th West Coast Computer Fair, which is really a lot of nice pictures, so I'll... Uh, I'll hold the magazine up to the microphone so you can see it. It's an interesting snapshot of some of the, you know, clothes of the time. And there's kind of a wide view of the exhibit at the Civic Auditorium in wherever this is, San Francisco, I think. The next program is Odds Line, Diminishing the Risk of Thoroughbred Wagering Using Your Computer by John Stevenson. 
And before we even get to the article, it says, We are opposed to gambling, called out in this sidebar before the main article. It continues, Nevertheless, if other people insist on frittering away their money in no-win situations, that's their business. The statement is signed DHA David H. All, apparently. And so it's an Applesoft basic like thing to help you, yeah, I guess, figure out the best chances of winning for your horse based on the track conditions, etc. But for being opposed to gambling, the article covers like four pages and the listing is an additional three. So it's a lot of space in your magazine for opposing gambling. The next article is called Golf Tea Puzzle Madness. It's another huge article. This is nine pages of text over 16 total pages of the magazine. So there's, you know, ads in between there. But it's basically an article on how to represent board games, uh, moves, and the logic of games in a computer program. The example is this triangular-shaped pegboard problem where you have to, like, there's, what, 15 holes in this triangle-shaped board, and you have 14 pegs, or golf tees, and you have to jump over tees, and by jumping over tee, you remove one tee, and so you have to get it all down to one golf tee at the end. And so this is like a whole description about how to solve this particular problem. You know, how to represent the board, how to represent the moves, the structure of the program, and then it's got an example program written in, looks like TRS-80 basic. So yeah, quite a long article. There are some examples in pseudocode, which is much easier to figure out than the basic. The basic is very hard to read. And part of that is just a limitation of basic itself, which is being hard to read and not very structured. The next article is Zeno's Spaceships, A Nonviolent Crash, and prepare to get sidetracked. We're going to go down a few rabbit holes. So the first rabbit hole is the image on the top half of this page is of two ships and this like planet-looking sphere in between them. And rabbit hole number one is the ships are Buck Rogers. You remember the movie Buck Rogers in the 25th century? It starred Aaron Gray and Gil Gerard. I was a super big fan of that, and I can still I still have the theme song going in my head. You know, I can play that at, at will. It's a pretty terrible movie, but as a kid, it was just amazing. Anyway, that picture shows these Buck Rogers fighter ships, which are like twin-engine, sort of vaguely aircraft fighter-looking design, except the vertical stabilizers normally on the, are on the top surface on a, a regular aircraft fighter. These are on the bottom. There's like twin vertical stabilizers, on, but on the bottom of the ship. So instantly recognizable as the Buck Rogers fighter ships. So rabbit hole number two is Zeno's Paradox. You've heard of Zeno's Paradox? Uh, sort of in a nutshell, it's like what happens when you go half the distance every time will you ever reach anything. So if you're, you know, 10 meters from some wall or something, okay, I'm going to go half the distance so you get five meters. Half the distance again, two and a half meters then one and a quarter meters, and so you're, you know, closer and closer and closer. As you get, you know, super close, you know, you're like, you're one centimeter away, then you go half that is, you know, five millimeters, then two and a half millimeters, and, then, and so you get smaller, smaller, smaller. Can you ever reach, you know, your destination? And mathematically, you say yes, you know, the limit is you actually reach there. As the number of steps approaches infinity, you actually will get there. But you kind of visualize, you know, even though you're, you're getting these microscopically close steps and you take half of that, that is sort of the paradox. In a finite number of steps, you never actually get there, but if you take the limit, you do get there. So the article in the accompanying basic code basically has these two spaceships approaching each other, and one fires a ball that is on the same path, and it then hits one spaceship, reverses, and then goes back and hits the first spaceship, and then bang, 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 bang sort of ping-pongs back and forth, each time transferring a little bit of momentum from the ball or from the ship to the ball, so the ship slow down, the ball speeds up, and the object is is does the ball take enough power from the ships to stop them and reverse them? Or do the ships crash into each other? Basically, the program demonstrates conservation of energy and momentum. And here's rabbit hole number three. I'm going to explain how this works. So basically, the assumption is, is this is what's called an elastic collision, is that no energy is lost between the ball and the ships. So all the energy is transferred from the ball to the ship and the ship back to the ball after they collide. So there's no loss in heat, which is what would happen if like the ball was compressible. 
or the front of the ship was like a crumple zone in a car, you know, that crushed itself in order to absorb the impact and spread the, the damage. So what, what this means is if the energy is conserved and the momentum is conserved, you can calculate the velocities after knowing the velocities beforehand. So the energy of an object is one half mv squared, m is the mass and v is the velocity. The momentum is just the mass times the velocity. So if we just look at the impact of the ball onto one of the ships. You have the energy of the ship plus the energy of the ball. That's got to be a constant. And then the momentum also is the momentum of the ship plus the momentum of the ball has to be a constant. I mean, they're different constants, but the momentum constant doesn't equal the energy constant. That's not what I mean. Just mean that value, the momentum has to stay constant before and after. So the momentum before has got to equal the momentum afterwards. And the same, the energy before has to equal the energy afterwards. And starting with known velocities, you know everything about the equation. You know the mass of each, you know the velocities of each beforehand. So that gives you the energy before and the, and the momentum before. What you don't know is the velocities after. So that means the energy equation has two unknowns, the velocity of the ship afterwards and the velocity of the ball afterwards. And the momentum has the same unknown velocities afterwards. So what we end up with is an equation or set of equations with two unknowns, but we have two equations. So we should be able to solve this. And I'm going to do this using metric units because, and here is, I don't know if I want to call this rabbit hole 3A or rabbit hole 4, but metric units are much easier to work with. Imperial units, or we should call them United Statesian units, since we're the only country that uses these dumb units. And I use dumb from a technical sense because they're stupid. I went through engineering degree and we had to use both English and metric, and the metric was so much easier to work with because then, I'll give you an example. English units, what do you think of as, as a pound? You know, something weighs a pound. Was that a pound force or a pound mass? Because they're two different units. In metric, we say something weighs, you know, whatever, kilograms. We know that's wrong because it doesn't actually weigh a kilogram. The force in metric is a newton. But we say it weighs a kilogram because on Earth, you know, something that weighs a kilogram pushes us down with a force that we have sort of associated with one kilogram, even though we know that's not a force. We feel the force that the one kilogram exerts on us, which is actually 9.8 newtons. But for our United Statesian system, you know, one pound, what we think of as a pound is actually a pound force. But that, that's not a unit of mass. A kilogram is a unit of mass. A pound force is not a unit of mass. It's a unit of force. What that force represents is some amount of mass under the influence of gravity. Gravity in the United Statesian system is 32.2 feet per second squared. So that means one pound force is equal to some amount of mass times 32.2 feet per second squared. And so that some amount of mass is defined in terms of a slug. And that's, that's an actual unit of mass, a slug. It's not a mollusk. It can also be defined, confusingly, in the terms of a pound mass which is a slug divided by 32.2. So it's super confusing. you got pounds force, pound mass, slugs. You know, I can't tell you how many times I got problems wrong because I forgot to convert the slugs to pound mass. Sometimes I would just like convert everything to metric, work it all in metric, and then convert it back to United Statesian slash stupidy units. So yeah, but that's what you thought we were downloading this podcast. Come for the Atari, stay for the rants on the unit systems. All right, so where were we? We're back with the energy and momentum. If we take an example problem, say we've got a 10 kilogram spaceship, a spaceship for ants, moving at 10 meters per second, and a 1 kilogram ball moving at 1 meter per second in the opposite direction. The energy for each object is 1 half mv squared, so you have the before and after case, so the energy before equals the energy after. The momentum is mv for each item, so you have the momentum before equals the momentum after. You can solve it by plugging in all the numbers, and you'll get two equations with two unknown variables, which you can then solve for. Essentially, you end up writing one equation in terms of one unknown equals all the other stuff, which includes the other unknown. Then you plug that back into the first equation, and that that gives you one equation with one unknown. And you solve that, and you get one velocity. And knowing one final velocity, you can then solve for the other final velocity. And then solving this ends up with the spaceship moving finally at 8 meters per second in the same direction. 
and the ball moving at 19 meters per second in the opposite direction that the ball was moving. So now in the same direction that the spaceship's moving. So we got through that article. It's a lot of rabbit holes for, a, turns out to be like a 30, 40 line basic program. But rabbit holes are fun. There's a basic game called Meteor, an arcade game using character graphics. This is for the PC without CGA adapter or anything. So it's uh, using the text screen for an arcade style game. It's written in basic. It's got a lot of tips for dealing with the PC's screen. And it's nothing like the Atari. Apparently in basic on the PC, you could only clear the... It's like 25-line screen, but you could only clear 24 lines with a regular clear command. And there's an additional command you have to use to clear the 25th line. And let's not even start to get into how crazy 8086 assembly programming is. We'll just leave the PC right there. However, this next article talks about a system that's even more strange than the PC. This article is called Bally Artillery by John W. Rhodes. And the game itself, it's in basic, it's a, sort of a typical artillery game where you have two cannons, you, you select an angle and the amount of powder, and shoot it and try to hit the other person. What's particularly interesting about this article is it's written for the Bally Astrocade, which I guess went by other names. It, here it's called the Bally Professional Arcade. But the system is an amazingly interesting, like complicated, unique system. It has a Z80 CPU, and it uses the same graphics chip, apparently, as some of the arcades that Bally and Midway developed. And Wikipedia says Dave Nutting and Associates built the graphics chip, saying the same graphics chip was used in games like Gorf and Wizard of War, which would seem to indicate that the Bally Astrocade would have like really good graphics, but apparently the bandwidth was so constrained that they couldn't use the, the full high-res. It would look, looked like it had a 320 by 204 mode for four colors, so it was limited to half that resolution in each direction, so it was 160 by 102. So it came with 4K of memory, and the screen uses almost all that memory, and yet they still had a basic for it. And so what they did to get the basic to work was they encoded your basic program into the screen RAM by using the odd bits to store the basic program and the even bits to actually display graphics. Now, ordinarily, that would result in sort of garbage on the screen if the odd bits have program code. You know, that doesn't necessarily correspond to what you want to display on the screen. And how they got around this was they sort of artificially turned this into a two-color mode. So they set two of the color registers to the same color and the other two color registers to a different color, such that the bit that corresponded to the code, whether it was on or off, it displayed the same color. So in that way, they got around the limitation in the RAM. It didn't have a keyboard either, and so like I guess the uh, the calculator keypad had a bunch of different symbols, and you could do shift and combinations and stuff to enter keyboard commands. It's unclear how they stored programs after. I don't know if you have to type it in every single time you want to use this, or just leave the computer on. I've never seen one of these systems, but it certainly sounds amazeballs, or if you'll pardon me, amazeballies. Next, we come to a card game on the OSI called Crazy 8 by John Crawlman. I'm just interested that they still have OSI stuff going on at this point. After that is the Apple Graphics Tutorial, the Graph Paper. It's called Part 2 Basic Approaches by David Lubar. And this one is a Shape Tables Tutorial. And I remember as a, you know, in the computer lab with the Apple IIs back at school, I thought Shape Tables were like this amazing thing, kind of like sprites or, you know, player missile graphics for the Atari. I thought it was the thing that would allow you to create arcade games on the Apple. But it turns out it's not. It's just, it's got a vector graphics sort of format. And this article describes how they actually work and are set up. As it turned out, it's a very slow format, so it's not at all used for games. It's basically encoding like little delta moves and whether the pixel is on or off. Interestingly, a couple pages into the article, at the end of a paragraph, it includes one of those little dots, you know, in, in creative computing, it's a little square that indicates it's kind of like the last paragraph in the article. I don't know what you call those little things. But it was put there by mistake because the article continues and it's got like three more pages. And then finally, a little square at the end indicates it's the end of the article. So I don't know what those little thingies are called. If anybody knows, you can let me know. Like end of article marker. Then we come to the Outpost Atari by David and Sandy Small. And this is all about Atari DOS. And it kind of goes over the, it looks like it might be a two-parter. 
because it only goes over the DOS commands for DOS 2, the menu commands through E, rename file. And that's pretty much all it is, kind of introducing DOS 2. Then we have the sections for the other lesser computers. We'll skip those till we get to an article, How to Write a Software Review by Stephen Kimmel. It almost looks like they're telling you how to write a review for creative computing because it gives their all their little tricks they look for. They describe the little software profile box that includes you know, the name, the type of the game, the system, format, language it's written in, your summary, the manufacturer, and the price. And specifically to this magazine, it said, in general, we prefer to avoid negative reviews. We aren't interested in reviews that tell how bad something is. If the program is that bad, it will probably have disappeared by the time we could print the review. This does not mean we are not interested in the negative points and weaknesses of a program. Very few programs are perfect, and your review will be more credible and more useful to readers if you mention specific things which you had trouble with or fell short of your expectations. And to their credit, they continue, Similarly, we aren't interested in reviews of programs that are blatantly sexist or offensive. We don't want to encourage the people who write and sell them. And that is always good to hear. And that, we're nearing the end, and it wouldn't be a creative computing without William Shatner and his creepy mug selling the VIC-20 on the inside back cover. And I'm not, like, totally bagging on the VIC-20 because, you know, looking it up, it sold, like, a million units in 1982. So there's certainly a lot of them out there. I just think the picture of William Shatner is just, like, particularly creepy. That's it for the Big Three magazines. We're going to pretend Byte doesn't exist this month because it's all about logo. I would have passed this one right up on the newsstand. If you like Logo, I would check it out. It doesn't have anything specific on the Atari. It has a bunch of references for the Apple II, the TI, 994A, and the TRS-80 color computer. But yeah, nothing for Logo on the Atari. So instead, we'll move right on into the computer and video games. This is issue number 10, the August 1982 issue, 75p on the cover price. The cover has a small haunted house-looking house on the sort of front lower part of the screen, and this, like, giant skeleton-looking guy with some blue flames coming out of the house. And the text says, Haunted House. More stuff on the cover says, Roborun, our first game for the Spectrum, plus listings for the ZX81, BBC Micro, Vic, Tandy, and many more inside. The sash on the top says, Your chance to design an electronic game. Details inside. And finally on the cover, it wouldn't be a recent computer and video games without a potentially sexist article. It says, The Lot of the Computer Wife. So yeah, we'll look at that. So the table of contents doesn't indicate any Atari-specific stuff. Most of the new games and new products early on here in the magazine are talking about stuff for the ZX81. They do mention one game, TT Racer, which is a motorbike racing program, looks like, available for the Atari 800. They talk about the appearance of a magic software for the VCS, mentioning games like Demon Attack, Star Voyager, a billiards game called Trick Shot, and Atlantis. They do have a couple ads for companies selling Atari software. There's one here from Gemini Electronics in Manchester. It's got the graphics for a game called Airstrike. And another for Action Quest. Seems like games might run like 20 pounds or so. Here we come to that article, The Wife's Tale. It just an article. I think it's supposed to be funny. Just It's trying to talk about you know, the stereotypical like husband who just pays attention to the computer and not paying attention to her. Yeah, they're just like super stereotypes in an attempt to be funny is what I think it is. But yeah, nothing funnier than stereotypes. They have a little section on arcade games talking about Zaxxon. Then we get into some of the program listings. The Haunted House game from the cover is for the Acorn Atom. Running in 12K, it says. I have Breakup for the BBC, Space Hopper for the TRS-80. Oh, and I'm wrong. They have a game for the Atari. It's called Martian Explorer. They didn't say that at all in the table of contents. The description seems to say it's some sort of cave exploring game where you have a spaceship and you have to land on little uh, landing pads that have your fuel supply. But it doesn't say if it's scrolling or anything and there's no screenshot. But it says runs in a 32K Atari with joysticks by Martin Crawley. 
listing covers parts of seven columns over three pages. If I had estimate, maybe 400 lines of basic? They have a few more listings, then they come to a article about the ZX81 and the keyboard. It looks like they have a like the schematic of the keyboard if you want to like try to wire up your own like actual physical keyboard rather than that teeny little membrane keyboard. They have their practical programming column about some basic tips. They have a little, another little review section, and then they come to uh, another section with some Atari stuff. It says, in the last year, Atari computers have taken off in the UK after enjoying success in America, second only to Apple computer. So it goes on to describe the difference between the 400 and 800, and they say the main difference is, beside the keyboard, is that the 400 can't be expanded from its basic memory of 16K, which you know, later, of course, is not true. There are a bunch of expansion kits, but I guess right at the moment, they're saying that there are no memory expansions available, which, again, I'm not sure that that's true at this point. I don't know when 400 memory expansions became common. Talk a little bit about some of the peripherals available, like the cassette recorder and the 825 printer and the 850 interface module. Seems to be biased mostly towards the cassette, the disk drive. I mean, certainly was available. And in the next couple of pages, there's an ad for Maplin, which is one of the main Atari suppliers in the UK. And the disk drive looks like it cost £345. And interestingly, they list the Atari 400 right here with 16K of RAM for 299 and the 400 with 32K of RAM for 395 pounds. So yeah, so clear, clearly the Atari 400 was available with more RAM than indicated in this article. It says the 800 with 16K of RAM is 599 pounds. So that's a big jump in price there. 299 pounds for the 400 with 16K and 599 for the 800 with 16K. For that difference, you could really get the 400 plus a disk drive almost. And that'll do it here for the computers and video games. And by the way, that issue was 92 pages. We'll move on to the micro. This is issue number 51, August 1982. Two bucks fifty in the U.S., two bucks ninety-five and internationally, and one pound eighty in the United Kingdom. It's one hundred thirty-one pages. The cover is yellow, and there's the usual computer screen looking backwards through the monitor at a couple of penguins. And it says "Programming Techniques Feature: Apple Garbage Collection, OSI Extended Parser, and Power Aid for the Pet." I don't think they mean a sports drink. I'm just going to cover like four things in the magazine, and one of them's not really a thing. I got interested in another thing listed in the table of contents. It says expanding file cabinet for the Apple. And I thought, oh, maybe there's going to be more rolly cart stuff. But no, it turns out there's a program called file cabinet. So we'll skip that. So the first thing I talk about is an article on structured programming in 6502 assembly language. And it first talks about kind of pseudocode, how to organize your stuff, and then goes into flowcharts. And I swear I just talked about flowcharts somewhere. And yeah, my memory is like gone. Was it the last podcast I talked about flowcharts and wanting to do flowcharting for, for some games or something? You know, obviously, the problem with structured programming in assembly language is it's like hard to read because there's takes so many commands to do like you know simple things. That from like a visual point of view, anyway. Additionally, problems are like the byte limits for branches. You can only go about 128 bytes either direction, and there's no like you know high level commands like looping or anything. You've got to do all that stuff by hand, and so it's difficult. So what this article does is it kind of gives you well one flowcharting and it shows you how to do some branches and things in flowchart and then it gives you a bunch of examples about how individual sort of high level commands look in assembly language. So it shows what while loops look like, what if then else looks like, that kind of stuff. The next is an article of pattern matching with the 6502 on the Apple. So that's the title, like oh, it's on the Apple, great. And then down below it says developed on an Apple, but no Apple specific features are used. So why in the, put that in the title? I'm waving my hands in incredulity. It goes over two pattern matching algorithms, one sort of an elementary one, it says, just by starting from the first byte of the target data and trying the first byte of the pattern that you want to match. And if it doesn't match, then it just goes to the next byte of the target data and tries to match that. And no matter how many characters it tries to match, if it fails, it just goes starts with the next character. So it just increments by one on the target data. And the other algorithm is the Newth-Morris-Pratt algorithm 
which sort of takes advantage of knowing where in the pattern you match to then skipping, you know, some number of characters if it knows that you won't be able to match certain characters in the beginning. It does a little timing and it supplies assembly language code for both. And the conclusion was that it's the additional complexity of the, the new S'mores Pratt algorithm was not worth it in most cases. And the third article we'll look at is a random number generator in machine language for the Apple. And again, is not really super Apple specific. There's a couple locations they use, but it could be applicable for any of the 6502 systems. So this is a pseudo random number generator. And it's interesting in that it uses repeated addition rather than shifting. It claims to have passed tests in this book uh, called Generation of Random Variates by Newman and Odell which I looked up and it was, it was written in the 70s and I've not been able to find a copy online anywhere to look at. So I don't exactly know what test it, it claims to be passing. But yeah, it would be easily modifiable to run on the Atari. It just uses some zero-page variables that would probably have to be changed. And also included is like a little demo program that calculates like a moving star field. But that one is definitely Apple-specific. That's poking stuff in the high-res screen. And then we'll start skimming through most of the rest of this. The power aid for the pet is definitely not about sports drinks. It's a basic utility... And really, the final thing I wanted to talk about was an ad for a magazine. It says, System 68, for you, the 68XX user, exciting new monthly magazine formatted for 68XX enthusiasts. Features include articles on the 6800, 6809, and 68000. Advertisers welcome. And I was like, oh, cool, a magazine. I, you know, I like the 68000. It was on the ST and the Amiga and stuff. I learned 68000 assembly language. It was, it's a really well-structured assembly language. So I thought, okay, I'll at least check out this magazine. And I cannot find out if this magazine was ever published. I can't find a reference to it. Internet Archive doesn't have it. Searching Google didn't produce anything. I kind of doubt that it ever was. The one lead I did find was in a trademark search. So the trademark System 68 was registered June 2nd, 1982. And then status, abandoned, failure to respond or late response. Status date, June 2, 1983. So that seems to indicate it either didn't last or wasn't published at all. But I could not find out any more about it. If you've heard of it or, yeah, know any more info, yeah, let me know. I'd be interested to see. So that's it for Micro. We'll move to SoftSide. This is SoftSide issue number 32, volume 5, number 11, for August 1982, although they never seem to list the month. It's 100 pages. It's a red cover, kind of a gradient from red down to kind of purplish red on the bottom. It says Operation Sabotage, and it's a big, looks like, chrome robot head. And in the reflection of the robot head, you see another robot. And a woman looks like holding a laser pistol of some sort. And the table of contents, the first thing it lists is Operation Sabotage in the front runner section. It says, another one of our encrypted adventures will be challenged to infiltrate an alien installation on Mars. So we'll take a look at that. There's Anatomy of an Adventure. It says, the creator of many of Sasai's adventures of the month will take you step-by-step through the process of writing an original adventure and translating it to other systems. We'll check that out. There's a CATS Part 2 and 3. That's that computer automated testing system. There's a feature on Tron, the movie, in the Entertainment Tomorrow section. On the Atari side, they have a disc-only utility that is not really described that we'll kind of skip over. And then in a nice synergy with the creative computing and that one adventure game that uh, gave them so many problems with the beeps, there's an article by John Anderson about the Atari silencer. It says, with a few inexpensive parts, you can put a switch on the speaker so you're in control. And there's a review of Deadline. Turning the page, there's an ad for Moonbase IO, the battle for the moons of Jupiter. It's a game from Beyond Software. It's a full-page ad. It's only black and white, so maybe it doesn't cost that much. But it seems like these full-page ads must cost a bit. It requires 24K Atari. It costs $29.95. And just for fun, I checked it out. And this is uh, not a good game. 
maybe on par with a magazine type-in? Maybe. We're kind of stretching it. It's a scrolling game where you have supposedly these spaceships attacking you, but the spaceships don't actually move on the scrolling background, so it's just kind of an exercise in dodging. And yeah, not a good game. The next page is uh, editorial. Microcomputers reach the age of adolescence. It's sort of an editorial on the increasing hardware specs. It starts off saying, when SoftSide began publishing in 1978, it was rare that we saw a program submission that required more than 4K. Today, it's becoming increasingly difficult for us to find quality programs which utilize less than 32K. And they go on to say that they're sort of aware that people are spending a lot of money just to get the basic systems, you know, the smallest amount of memory just to be able to afford a system. And it says they're not sure how long they can remain targeting these small systems, even though their desire is to provide something for everyone. They say, you may wish to take that as a foreboding of the future direction of SoftSide. They say soon 64K RAM and disk drives as an entry-level system are going to be the standard configuration. And then it has a rather prescient piece here at the end. It says, take a moment and peer through the looking glass at the world of tomorrow with me. The frustration with which we are now coping will seem insignificant as we attempt to determine which of the central information services we wish to enter our homes. Every piece of information we could possibly desire will be available through a cable connection, awaiting only the touch of a key. It will even more readily be available as images of most of the books and artworks of the world will reside on small collection of laser discs on our library shelves. See, just imagine when one of our grandchildren asks, what's a mini floppy? Did it even last that long, grandchildren? Possibly, I guess it's 40 years, I suppose. That's a pretty good idea. They kind of nailed the internet, and while they thought everybody would have their own libraries on, you know, banks of CD-ROMs or DVDs, but that era sort of has already passed. In the reader feedback section called Input Output in this magazine, they have one little note from uh, Atari uh, users group in Australia. It's called the Atari Computer Enthusiast New South Wales, loosely affiliated with the Atari Computer Enthusiast in the U.S. So if you're near the uh, Carlton Center, 55 Elizabeth Street in Sydney, yeah, you might want to stop by on the what first Monday of every month at 6 p.m. A few pages further on, we come to Anatomy of an Adventure by Peter Kirsch. This is a, sort of the skeleton of a text adventure in BASIC. The main sections in the article are about the idea and how you develop the story, then the adventure skeleton itself, talking about Atari BASIC and how it differs from other BASICs like TRS-80 BASIC, and how the like differences in the string commands, which are used to search for text um, you know, items in the, in the text parser, require different techniques on the different systems. I guess it says here he develops on the TRS-80 and then translates to the Apple and Atari, but there's really no reason you couldn't develop on the Atari and translate it to other systems. He goes over enough of the differences in the basics to sort of be able to use any one as a starting point. Then he has a section on playtesting and debugging, noting that this part of the process is as much as a part of it as the writing of the code. So the Atari has by far the easiest editing. The joy of editing with the Atari stems from the fact that the program continuation is not halted once a change has been made. So when he finds a bug, he fixes it and then does a go-to whatever to put him back where he was. It talks about playtesting being in three stages, the initial run, the thorough playtesting, and the fine-tuning. And then right before listing out the whole the skeleton of the what your program might look like, he talks about creating puzzles. And he doesn't have any specific advice, just a couple of examples of things that he's done. Then the code listing is the skeleton of the program, and it's kind of broken up. It's not only in two columns, so it's not very long, but it's broken up with some like basic commands and then some text between it sell- telling you what would go in the subsequent section of the code. The next article is the 1982 National Computer Conference. What's a mainframe? It asks by George Blank. It said 100,000 people went to this in the Astrodome in June. Instead of the three computer systems they cover here at the magazine, Atari didn't exhibit, saying they were preferring to go to the CES in Chicago. They said Apple had the same old models 2 and 3, and the booth staffers either pretended ignorance or became rude when asked about Lisa, the codename for the next generation of Apples. 
and that Radio Shack had nothing more than the Model 16 and the second edition of the Pocket Computer. They talked about seeing the Commodore 64 there. So it clearly aimed at the Atari marketplace, and the price at 600 is very aggressive. So this Commodore claims to have shipped more computers worldwide than anyone else, but with so many models, screen formats, and ROM changes, no single Commodore computer seems to have adequate software support. So, hmm. They mentioned a few other computers they saw. They say the ultimate executive status symbol is the Grid Systems Compass computer. And I have a little picture of it, and it looks like, if you've seen the first season of Halt and Catch Fire, a series about the early computer industry, I think sort of ostensibly like Compaq and how Compaq sort of reverse-engineered the IBM ROMs and made their own computer. But the computer that they produced on the show looked a lot like this. It was a like LCD laptop sort of looking machine. And this one looks like it has a built-in phone for a modem. And when I say phone, I mean like actual handset that like has a corded cable plugged into the side of the machine. So the screen is 320 by 240, 5 inches by 3.5 inches. Plus 24 lines of 70 characters or some very nice graphics. The system has 256K of RAM, which is a lot, and 256K of bubble memory built in and sells for $8,150. Yikes. That is about $22,000 today. Probably not going to be covering that computer in soft side. They mentioned the Epson HX20 for $800 that comes with 16K of RAM. And they mentioned the Sony SMC70 computer, which there's a picture of also included in this article. This is a 4 megahertz Z80 and runs CPM. Graphics resolution ranges up to an incredible 640 by 400 dots and allowing 16 colors in the 320 by 200 mode. Next, we come to the article about Tron. This is by Fred Dignazio and Alan Wold. Kind of gives a summary of the movie and says, is it an anti-computer movie? It compares it to the likes of Failsafe, The Forbin Project, Demon Seed 2001, and recently Evil Speak. I don't know any of those movies apart from Failsafe in 2001. Said that critics point to the demonic program, the MCP, and its classic computer obsession of revenge against its human users. And they say, according to writer-director Steven Lisberger, Tron is not anti-computer at all. In his eyes, the computer is a powerful tool that is ethically neutral. And the article talks about some of the technology used to make the images in the movie. It said Tron costs Disney $17 million to produce, $4 million of which was spent on computer-generated imagery, and then $6 million went into the non-computer-generated special effects. Yeah, all the actors, I guess, were like photographed in black and white, and they used cell animation to get all the colors to pop, like it shows in the movie. IMDb says it grossed $33 million on a $17 million budget. I guess that's not considered too successful, because it took how many years to make the sequel? It said the studio knew that they could shoot the entire movie digitally and add special effects without ever having to use film, but they said the studio didn't have any of the experimental printers, nor the expertise to use it. So it said they did like a traditional animation where you stack the cells on top of each other and take a photograph of that. And it says, one day this process will be entirely automated, but not yet. They said filmmakers were concerned the nonstop stream of spectacular special effects in Tron would burn out the eyeballs of the average moviegoer. So to solve that, they said they used some sort of like sine wave on the like the timeline of the storyboards in order to have like periods of high energy followed by periods of low energy, so it wasn't just like constant high en- energy. Finally, they say that Disney animators who worked on Tron are convinced that the computer will not replace them. Instead, they see CGI as a sophisticated new animator's tool that actually lets them closer to and lets them play a bigger part in the final product. So it's a nice four-page article, and there's uh, several nice color photos of the uh, film itself. Next article is Operation Sabotage by Ray Sato. It's for TRS-80, Atari, and Apple. And said the most obvious feature of the program listing is that most of it looks like a cryptogram. The basic keywords are in the usual form, but the string assignment statements and data lines contain incomprehensible garbage, which makes sense. If you're typing in a text adventure, you don't want it to like give away all the stuff. Use a simple two-word parser, and it says that the computer looks only at the first three letters of the verb and only at the last three letters of a noun, which is interesting. I guess if you were designing this game, you would have to make sure that you didn't overlap a verb and a noun, or maybe they look at it from two separate tables. 
And the next many pages is the listing for each of the three systems. Following this is the CATS Computer Assisted Testing System. This is parts two and three. Part one was in the last issue. So part two is the, the testing module, which enables the student to take the test. And then the part three, the score evaluation module, is the one that the teacher then, I guess, brings in all the data and is allowed to you know evaluate the test scores. And apparently it has some, some statistical analysis stuff on both individual uh, students and by question. And then lots more pages of listing. The Apple side section is next, and that's a bunch of pages that we'll skip. The disk-only utility program looks like a pretty printer for basic programs where it splits compound statements into individual lines, which could definitely make a basic listing more readable. Then we come to the article Atari Silencer by John J. Anderson. This is a hardware project where you are adding a wire between the speaker and and you put a switch on it so you can turn the speaker on and off. And I definitely did this on my 800. I have, I don't know where I found the plans for it, if I just did it. It's really not that hard. It's just essentially what you do is you just separate one of the wires that goes from one side on the speaker and put a switch in, in between it. And if the switch is closed, then it allows the speaker to work. And if it's open, then it turns the speaker off. But it includes nice descriptions on the amount of wire you need, the particular switch that he used, and a couple of nice diagrams. The next is a review of Deadline, the Infocom text adventure uh, eaten by a Gru. Okay, and Character have done this review. It's their episode 6. I'll include a link in the show notes for that. We skip over the TRS-80 section and then find the new products. And interestingly, they list the Moonbase IO game. It says the first game on the market to combine arcade and adventure formats with voice narration, which that was not at all like apparent when I was testing it earlier. It said the game consists of a voice cassette and a disc. So that's interesting that Atari Mania just seemed to have the cassette image, but maybe there was a like audio track on the cassette image. I don't know that. They also talk about the My First Alphabet game by Fernando Herrera, released from the Atari Home Computer Division. And finally, on the inside back cover is a game, Crypt of the Undead, by Epix. And what's notable about this is it was written by Mark Benioff, the billionaire Salesforce.com CEO. He started on the Atari. He's got nine credits listed in the giant list of classic game programmers, although Atari Mania seems to have more. Although it's unclear to me which are like re-releases of the same game. And that'll do it for SoftSide. And now I'm going to add a new magazine to the coverage. This is Softline. I sort of thought it was an Apple II-only magazine. It's related to Softalk, which is definitely an Apple magazine. Softalk was founded by Margot Comstock and Al Tomervik. It's an interesting story, I guess. Margot Comstock won money on the television game show Password, which provided some of the startup capital for Softalk. And yeah, Softalk was an Apple II-only magazine. And some of the history of the magazine said that it was initially sent free to all registered owners of the Apple II, but then required a subscription. I've definitely, definitely seen Soft Talk at Kansas Fest. And I think I've even seen Soft Line, and I kind of dismissed it as Apple II. And as you'll see in the first issue, it, it is all Apple II, but then it does bring in the Atari. Margot Comstock actually gave the keynote at Kansas Fest 2014, which is the year before I started going to Kansas Fest. So I'm sorry to have missed that. Yeah, my first Kansas Fest was 2015 when Rebecca Heinemann gave the keynote. So Softline being part of Softalk ended at the same time Softalk did, which is in early 94. I guess they had cash flow issues, and rather than kind of go to a reduced publishing schedule, they decided to stop publishing entirely. The first issue of Softline was the September 1981 issue, and then the final one was the March 1984 so here in the timeline, it's August 1982, so we've missed six issues of Softline. So I'm going to kind of speed through these first six, and then we'll get a, get us caught up. And then the next issue is in September of 82, which will be the next episode on the podcast. So then we'll just fold that into the normal magazine coverage. 
So here's the first issue. It's volume one, number one, September 1981, $1.50 on the cover price. It has a rectangular box on the top, including the word softline. It written in like a neon font. Could be a photo of an actual neon sign that spells out softline, but it's glowing in yellow. And the bottom two thirds of the page is a photograph of a guy's like work area with an Apple II and a disk drive sitting on top and a, a drawing tablet in front with a TV monitor. It says inside Apple II graphics. And I don't know who the guy is. I searched around in the magazine and it didn't seem to indicate who the photo was of. And flipping through this, you would be forgiven if you thought this was an online systems promotional magazine or something, because it's like virtually all the ads are online systems. It has articles from Ken Williams and mentions online systems everywhere. And then as I went back and, and read the masthead closer, it says, you know, Softline Copyright 1981, Softalk Publishing, blah, 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 uh, as a continuation of the online letter which I haven't been able to find a lot of information about, but seems to be like a, some similar games kind of magazine or newsletter type thingy. It says the editors, Margot Comstock, Tomervik, the publisher is Al Tomervik, and says it's published the, on the 15th of every other month by Softalk Publishing. It says, Softline subscriptions are free to owners of personal computers. In your subscription request, include your name, address, brand, model, and serial number of the computer you own, and a brief description of your peripherals. If you do not own a computer, you may subscribe to Softline at the rate of $6 per year for six issues. So that's cool. On Wikipedia, it mentions you have to be an Apple owner, but here it just says anything. So any system. But this issue is totally Apple-centric. It says Apple is a registered trademark of Apple Computer Inc. Cupertino, California. In the editor's letter, they say this is going to be about games and game programming. It says they'll have articles about what makes what it takes to make a good game, programming advancements as they pertain to games, profiles of programmers who write the games, and tutorials to explain fundamentals of game programming. Previews of important new stuff, plenty of reviews of game products, and general interest articles and columns. They have a note about how they create the magazine. It's an article called High Tech Type by Greg Voss, and they go on to sort of describe how the magazine is created. And they said, Softline is typeset entirely using telecommunications. So it says they type articles in and edit them on Apple's, then sent to the typesetter using a modem. So rather than paste up stuff in their office, take it to the typesetter, wait for the turnaround, drive it back, I guess they can just get the stuff right from the typesetter and proofread it without several additional trips. And I guess that's a contrast to how a magazine like Analog was set up. I interviewed Mike Deshane back in episode, what was that, two or three? And how they had, you know, they did everything in their office on these big boards and took photos and said, you know, much differently, at least in the beginning, a uh, much more manual process. There's a series, Apple II Graphics, an inside look by Ken Williams, the same Ken Williams of online systems. It's really starting from basics here on the sort of understanding how binary works, and it will develop over time, as we'll see. I have a couple reviews, one of Ultima, Ultima 1, by Lord British, and the arcade game Sneakers. And there's a preview of the game called Time Zone, written by Roberta Williams. And again, just kind of echoes how this really feels like an online systems promotional magazine. And just saying stuff using language like, Online Systems has received many enthusiastic inquiries about Time Zone. You know, definitely letting you know that they're insiders here. All throughout the magazine, there were like little one-column ads for online games like uh, Pegasus 2, uh, Sabotage, Missile Defense. Another one for high-res football, high-res soccer. There are a few other ads. There's one for special effects by Mark Pelzarski for Penguin Software, but the bulk of the ads are from online systems. There are a couple sales ads, you know, listing prices on various software or hardware products. At the end of the magazine, they have a high scores list, which will be a theme, at least for as far ahead as I've looked on the magazine. 
So they list scores for games like ABM, Alien Rain, Apple Panic, um, Sabotage. The Alien Rain high score is credited to somebody named Alan Lee for 17 million, and we'll, we'll circle back to this in a future episode. The high score for Gobbler is by Al Tomervik, so I don't know how widely they're casting their net on uh, people's scores. Interestingly, the high score on Sabotage is 13,000, and my high score is like 50, because you lose a point every time you shoot. But the owner of this high score is Steve Wozniak, 13,678. The high score for Apple Panic is Alice Carlston at 98,000 from San Rafael, California, and I just can't help but wondering if she would be related to Doug Carlston, the owner of Protobun Software, who the publisher of Apple Panic, because they were in San Rafael, California. So that's the end of the first issue. Forgot to mention it was 30 pages. And we'll pull up the second issue, which is also 30 pages. This is volume one, number two, November 1981. Same $1.50 on the cover price. Same sort of yellow neon font on the top saying softline. The cover is a photo of Bill Budge. It says, Game Programming East slash West Compared Notes. And then the table of contents and look down and below it added a line here down in sort of the copyright info. It says, Atari is a registered trademark of Atari Inc. Sunnyvale, California. So here's where we get our first sort of Atari info in the magazine. We're starting to get a few different advertisers come in. There's an ad for Datamost Snack Attack, although to be sure, we've already seen several ads for online system stuff. There's the article on Apple II Graphics. This is Mapping the Memory Maze by Ken Williams. It kind of goes over all the craziness of how the Apple screen memory is organized, which if I were to summarize in one word, it would be convoluted. There's the article from the cover. It says, Bill Budge chats with StarCraft's galaxy of programmers. Essentially, it seems to be a view of how Japanese programmers are comparing the American programmers. Apparently, Bill Budge visited Japan and was asked a bunch of questions about the differences. Budge seemed to think that the Japanese technology would take over the American market eventually. And I guess he might be predicting the NES, I suppose. The Japanese programmers he talked to, including Tony Suzuki, who we will talk about later from a a game that he writes, um, they think they don't or can't make a living as game programmers in Japan for some reason. They seem to think it's not a respected um, occupation in Japan. Budge says, I hope you'll change your mind. You're a very good programmer. Talking about Suzuki. In the future, game programs will become much harder to write, and I think writing them will be very respectable. Budge talks about wanting more power and CPUs just because the more advanced graphics take better data structures, and curved surfaces and shading just can't be done with the 6502. Interesting, he also says that he envisions more collaboration in game development, saying that he thinks computer game companies of the future might be modeled after, he says, the sort of technical group that Star Wars producer George Lucas has put together to produce computer graphics for films. So he's he's right on target with a lot of this stuff. Further on in the magazine, there's an interview with Mark Termel, who's the author of Sneakers. And in the review section, they finally talk about their first Atari game, the Scram. It's the simulation of the nuclear power facility, sort of modeled after the Three Mile Island disaster. Now we're right here at the end of the magazine. It's got the high score list and still the Alien Rain high score of 17 million. Steve Wozniak still holds the sabotage record and the Apple Panic record formerly held by Alice Carlston, presumably somehow related to uh, Doug Carlston, has been smashed. It's now 412,000 by Richard Smith of San Jose, California. There's a cross-section of publishers now. It's not just mostly Sierra online games or actually it's still online systems. The inside back cover is a full-color ad for Threshold by Online Systems, which I certainly remember that game, also ported to the Atari. as pretty much a straight port. You know, it runs in graphics 8 and uses artifact and colors. All right, we'll move on to the next issue. This is the January 1982 issue. It's volume 1, number 3, although on the cover it just says volume 1, but it is volume 1, number 3. 
$1.50 on the cover price. This is a soft line in neon, except now it's in kind of a white-blue neon. And the picture on the bottom, you know, like two-thirds of the page, is a kind of close-up of the Pac-Man arcade game. As you're sort of looking at the monitor, you can see the joystick and the start, the two start buttons and the screen and kind of the, what do you call it, I guess, the bezel art, you know, the stuff around the monitor. The screen is, is shot in, like, the attract mode, but <laughs> there's a strip of paper or, or sticker or something right above the joystick that says, Shoplifting is a Crime. And I guess this is foreshadowing for an article or series of articles coming up written by Al Tomrovic about software piracy. So the magazine size has expanded. This is now 40 pages. It still only has Apple and Atari as the trademark. So we're still just talking about it's still mostly Apple, but they're, you know, throwing in more Atari things. All the technical articles so far have been Apple specific. There's a little article called New Players kind of listing some new software companies. And it talks about Gabelli software, how Nasser Gabelli broke off from serious software to form his own company. There's an article, Chess Championship, Machines Play, People Watch by Craig Stinson. It's the 12th annual North American Computer Chess Championship. And the winner was a program called Bell, written by Ken Thompson of Bell Labs and Unix and C and that kind of stuff. Next is the Apple II graphics column by Ken Williams. The peculiarities of the high-res screen. It does a lot of poking around in basic and kind of tries to show the, you know, the all the awkwardness with the bitmap and... You know, the bits are reversed on the, as they display on the screen and all sorts of stuff. So there's an article called Things to Come, Ultra Res, and it doesn't say who this is written by. And it's like, I read this and I was like, is this an April Fool's thing? But it's not an April issue. It's talking about some new language for the computer graphics. Uh, it's just based around coding mechanisms the human brain uses to interpret visual images. It's almost like they're talking about like a JPEG sort of compression algorithm or something. But then it goes on and says like, it may be more like vector because you can scale it to whatever resolution you want. This is a very non-specific article about some way of coding languages. I mean, I might even be talking about something like PostScript. I was unsuccessful doing, like, Google searching. I did find one reference in the IEEE Computer Graphics and Applications magazine, but it seemed to indicate that it was an advertisement for UltraRes. So I don't know what this is and if it amounted to anything. My guess is it did not. In the review section, they have a review of Star Raiders. Quite positive. Um, says, the game stands repeat play well and remains quite difficult. They have several reviews for games that were reviewed here on the Apple, but were also ported to the Atari, like Crossfire and David's Midnight Magic. Here's the article I guess alluded to on the front cover, The Great Arcade Slash Computer Controversy, Part 1, The Publishers and the Pirates. We've kind of gone over some of this in previous episodes, talking specifically here about Atari suing over Pac-Man and, you know, clones of games. So he's clearly in support of the publishers over the pirates, and I, I mean, as most magazine publishers would be saying, Atari has been pictured of late as a corporate monolith seeking to break the small software houses functioning to provide the product for the Apple market. A more balanced picture needs to be presented. Atari is currently by far the largest purveyor of computerized entertainment products for the home market. While its personal computers have gotten off poorly, its game machines, going back to the time of Pong, have dominated the marketplace. The company has aggressively pursued the rights to attractive games that would enhance their leadership position. Same, because, they, you know, they've spent so much money paying for the rights that they deserve to have money compensated. For the people that make sort of clones, he said the company approached each infringer on Asteroids and Missile Command, as an example here, and offered to settle for an almost unreasonably small royalty payment on each package sold, saying this is kind of a fair sort of thing for Atari to do. But then, coming to Pac-Man, saying they view Pac-Man as a unique phenomenon and believe their rights to the program to be invaluable. To that end, they approached Broderbund Software, a distributor of Snoggle, 
and online systems which distributed Gobbler in the Apple market and Jawbreaker in the Atari market. And Broderbund decided to pull Snoggle from the marketplace and then talk about what uh, Ken Williams is doing about Jawbreaker, who's... Ken Williams is quoted as saying, I don't think Jawbreaker is a ripoff of Pac-Man, and I definitely won't take Atari's word for it. If a judge tells me it's a ripoff, I'll gladly take it off the market. So the federal judge then found that they were not going to grant Atari's request for the injunction, but that Tom Rivick writing says the issue is so complex that even Williams doesn't know if if he'd won something or lost something. And then quotes Williams, if this opens the door to other programmers ripping off my software, what happened here is a bad thing. Tom Rivick, the author, then kind of starts to think that Atari's motivation is more around individual piracy, or as much around individual piracy as it is infringement of other software publishers. He writes, realistically, 20,000 pieces in the Apple market makes little or no dent in Atari's proclaimed market of 3 to 4 million, but Atari officials privately express concern about rampant piracy that magnifies the official sales count by as much as five or six times. And it said, even if Atari were to institute licensing programs, it is clearly not enough to provide revenue to compensate for such loss as pi- that pi- amount of piracy implies. It then sort of concludes with like the stature of software pirates being like highly respected people in ordinary life and compares like doctors and lawyers who take oaths to follow the highest ethical standards aren't immune to pirate fever. Well, this, this article is, has multiple installments, as we'll see, and generates a lot of feedback, as we'll also see here in the next couple issues of this magazine. There's an interview with Alec Debjenko, who is a Sierra author that wrote a couple Apple games, um, and that comes to the end of this issue. So three down, three to go as we catch up here to the timeline. So the next one, Softline, volume one, number four for March 1982. This is $2 on the cover price now. The cover picture is like a medieval setting. Oh, it's close up on a person wearing a, a metal helmet with metal gauntlets and looks like leather armor. The caption is, it's no fantasy. Everyone wins with wizardry. And the page count has increased again. We're now up to 64 pages. Advertisers are much more diverse. There are now about 25 different advertisers listed. Apple and Atari are still the only computer companies mentioned in the table of contents copyright info section. It still lists that subscription is free if you have a computer. In the reader comment section, there's a letter about a guy who says he's an amateur machine language programming, has some questions and stuff. And it's Tom Hall from New Berlin, Wisconsin. And I'm wondering if this is the same Tom Hall who is in the future of id software. Don't know how we'd ever find that out, but it got me wondering. And another is a it's like a four column rant on that response to the piracy article from the last issue. I don't know why they published this whole thing, but seriously, it's got to be like 2000 words. It is quite the rant, clearly on the side of pirates and against the idea that anybody who makes a game is protected from people who want to make clones of that game. His idea meaning that people should be able to make improvements on any game they want and that pirates themselves aren't really pirates because they get, they can't afford the software. So they sort of pool their money and share the software among people. The analogy he makes is lending this copy of Softline to somebody else. Is that stealing? So yeah, stay tuned for next issue for more of response to this letter. There's like four letters from people who say they don't believe that 17 million score on Alien Rain. One of them says, well, I don't think, I'm not exactly calling him a liar. But I don't think he did it by himself. And then the editors respond, and they say indeed that it was a group of people who did that score, and that they reported it that way to Broderbund. For the magazine, they say that they're going to remove that group score and replace it with an individual high score. So the first actual article in the magazine is uh, part two of the great arcade-slash-computer controversy, 
So yeah, the follow-up on the piracy. And so in this article, trying to compute a reasonable price for software and goes into kind of the calculations of what it costs to produce one, you know, one piece of software and then what sort of the markup needs to be and to keep these software publishers in business. There's an article about adventure games. Uh, Adventures in adventuring, please parse the Zork. It's about parsers and improvements in parsers that they've sort of seen in the adventure game uh, genre, starting with Zork. And then it includes like a, in basic, a simple parser demo program. In the review section, they review Space Invaders and Energy Czar for the Atari. In the new players section, they talk about Datamost software and interview Dave Gordon, the president of Datamost. And there's a big article on Wizardry, which is a sort of adventure program that never made it to the Atari. I remember my Apple friends being like super impressed with this program. I remember being kind of like a first person perspective, like they would draw um, caves and stuff as you were wandering through the place, but I don't have a strong memory of this game. I always enjoyed the Ultima series better for this kind of role playing game. And then following that is an article, an interview with Robert Woodhead, the programmer of Wizardry. Apparently, the game itself was a collaboration between him and a guy named Andrew Greenberg, who is credited here in the article as the designer of the game, and um, Robert Woodhead as the programmer. There's previews of a couple games. One is Deadline from Infocom that Kay and Carrington have reviewed, and another is Ultima 2. The Apple II graphics column is subtitled Color Me Blue or Green or Purple. It's by Ken Williams, and tries to make sense of the high-res screen and describes how it's kind of like a it's three different screens at once. It's sort of 560 pixels wide, but then also 280 pixels wide and also 140 pixels wide, kind of depending on what you do with it. It's yeah, very complicated and not straightforward. And that's all about all the interesting stuff in that issue. We'll go on to the next one, volume one number five for May 1982, $2 on the cover price. Again, the soft line is a neon. This is kind of that white blue neon. And the cover is a picture of Flynn from Tron looks like in his light cycle, very close up just on his head and helmet and stuff, and it says Electronic Games Star in Disney Flick, with the Tron being capitalized. Page count is down slightly in this issue, it's 56 pages. Table of contents, they list an interview with John Harris, independently Atarian, they say. Down below in the copyright section, it still lists just Apple and Atari, and subscriptions are still free if you own a computer. In the reader feedback section, there's a comment to that four-column screed in the previous reader feedback section. This is Stephen R. Greenberg writing, I've never read such an elaborate attempt to justify theft as the letter written by John Strang in the March 1982 issue, in which he contends there's nothing wrong in making unauthorized copies of published software, saying the purchaser does not buy the license to copy and distribute the program for free or profit. The next letter is in a similar vein, saying, I'm surprised that you printed Mr. Strang's drivel with no editorial comment. His letter is a seamless issue of lies and nonsense. Two wit, and then lists like six bullet points just like trying to refute everything that the original author said. This author is Jeffrey Puderbaugh from Sunnyvale. But don't worry, we haven't heard the last of this debate. The Adventures in Adventuring column is back. This one is from Here to There and Back Again by Ken Rose. It's talking about map making for adventure games. And it's got some basic listing. The Game Line Review section, there is a review of Caverns of Mars. Takeaway is, this game is great, you'll find it difficult to tear yourself away, and Ray Bradbury's Mars was never this much fun. There's a review of Tumblebugs by Bob Bishop, and the Atari version was by Mark Riley, but specifically this is a review of the Apple version. There's an article called Modem Gamesmanship, right from the source and back again, by Roe R. Adams III. And this is, when they say the source, they mean actually the online service, the source. So talking about uh, games available through that service. 
you know, saying they're all text games and that the limiting speed of the current technology doesn't allow graphics games. And here's the article on Tron. It says, Disney takes computer games to the outer limit by Andrew Christie. And it is hard to overstate how mind-blowing Tron was to me. And as we've seen here in the last few months worth of magazines, Tron coverage is all, I mean, every magazine, it seems, has, had, has talked about Tron to some extent. And in a sense, this article is similar to the others in talking about how they did and didn't use the computer for various things. The one thing they mentioned in this article that I hadn't seen mentioned anywhere else is the design concepts came from an artist named Jean Giraud, also known as Mobius, who is the same Mobius in Jodorowsky's Dune, which is a documentary film, which you ha if you haven't seen it, it's fascinating. I don't know how you describe the filmmaker, Alejandro Jodorowsky experimental, avant-garde, crazy, really super interesting. Just fascinating, fascinating guy. And the film is amazing. It's about his attempt to make Dune, you know, eventually made into the David Lynch film in 84. But Yodorowsky tried to make this movie in the, starting in the mid-70s, sort of before Star Wars. And then the documentary Yodorowsky's Dune is about this whole process, you know, told many years later. It's just, it's it's crazy. It's insane. It's, I don't know, you have to watch it. If if you're at all interested in film and science fiction, it's just, it's amazing. And this, and Yodorowsky is an amazing storyteller. I don't know, I can't say enough good things about the film. In particular, there's a scene, they storyboarded this whole movie, apparently, and it would have been like a 14-hour a movie or something crazy. So in the documentary of this movie, they take a scene and they storyboard it, or using the storyboards, they sort of animate it and show what the sort of opening montage of the movie would have been like. So they would have been developing this before Star Wars, and the I don't know how they could have possibly done even this opening scene that they animated using the storyboards. It's just amazing. Yeah, go watch the movie, the documentary anyway. Yodorowsky's movies themselves, to me, are just like way, way out there. I don't, I don't know that I could watch more than a couple minutes of one of his movies, but the, the movie about making the movie is amazing. Alright, back to magazine land. Apple II Graphics Moving Into Animation by Ken Williams, spelled M-O-O-V-I-N-G, because they're talking about shape tables and they have created a high-res cow in shape tables. This article is all about animation, and yet in the second paragraph they say, we won't get much into detail here about how to create shape tables since many people already own shape table generation programs and because shape using shape tables is an extremely poor method of animation. So I guess that's why you have a whole article about it. In the new players section, talking about new software companies, there's Riverbank Software and Voyager Software. They've got some interviews, slight, small interviews anyway, of some of the people. And then we come to the interview with John Harris, independently Atarian. Articles by David Hunter. We've talked about John Harris in the past, episode five, theoretically. I don't remember anything I said because it was like an eon ago, but I'm just going to go ahead and assume I covered it really thoroughly. In this article, it says, uh, he's quoted as saying, I almost chose a pet. But chosen Atari because of the full screen editing feature and the fact that it is easier to use than other small computers. Also says he served as the president of the San Diego Atari Users Group until he left to work at online. Of Jawbreaker, it says uh, it was originally Harris's idea and then he got a lot of suggestions from people who said it was way too much like Pac Man, so he made some changes. And yeah, I'm definitely sure I remember talking about the sort of lawsuits and stuff in episode five. And, you know, even in the last issue of this magazine, they talked about, you know, Ken Williams and the, that that was this, you know, Jawbreaker versus Atari. Talk about his next game being Mouse Attack, not nearly as successful as Jawbreaker. Um, I guess sort of blaming it here on the, the new amount of games on the market. Said it's uh, it's so huge that some pretty good games never quite get the attention they deserve. 
And that advertising and marketing can affect that. And, you know, Harris saying he didn't have any input and said he prefers to let people who know what they're doing handle that. And Harris says he plans to stick with the Atari for the moment, although it might change in the future. He said the graphics and sound for the Atari are much better than the Apple. It has a lot more capabilities for games. Although, sounding traitorous, he says the new Commodore is a good machine, though, and I would like to do some games on that computer. Although the giant list of classic game programmers says that he did not follow up on that threat. There's an article, Gang Up on Your Computer, A Call for Teamwork and Game Playing by Philip Good. And it talks about cooperation on game playing, which is always one of my favorite things. That, you know, multiplayer simultaneous games. Talk about a game called Star Thief, which sounds a lot like Ripoff, the arcade game. And then notes that like asteroids from Atari on the home systems, you can play with multiple people at the same time. Also mentioned a game, Ghost Hunter, which is like a simultaneous Pac-Man, which I think would be fun. The high score list is now almost two pages full of games. The Sabotage high score is up to like 86,000. Oh, I forgot to look back when Steve Wozniak lost his Sabotage high score. Okay, pause. I'm gonna go find that. Alright, last issue, Sabotage high score was 44,000. Issue before that, it was 26,000. So it looks like Steve only had the high score for two issues. And the high score tables don't list any systems, so I'm assuming they're all for Apple. And that is the end of that issue, so we have one more before we're caught up. And here we go, volume one, number six, July 1982, $2 on the cover price. The softline neon is an orangey-white this time. It says, Mind Over Battle, the History of War Games. And it's a picture of a ten-sided die sitting on like a, it looks like a wargaming table where it's like, you know, got small models of armies and looks like there's some fields and roads. The page count has gone down again, it's now 40 pages. For the first time in the table of contents, we have an article about Atari development. It says Atari Sound, Pokey, and the Black Holes. And it also lists an article, Things to Come, K-Byte Cartridges. And K-Byte is an Atari software producer. Still just lists Apple and Atari in the copyright section. And subscriptions still free for owners of personal computers. So here's the cover article, Attack from the Stone Age, the History of War Games by John Champlin. And it's pretty much exactly what you might imagine it to be, History of War Games. This is talking about tabletop war games in general. I mentioned companies like Avalon Hill that produced a bunch of tabletop board games. They mentioned a few computer games, but mostly in passing. And it's this article, it really is pretty much about board games. There's the article on K-Byte. Talk about them releasing three ROM cartridges, K-Razy Critters, K-Star Patrol, and K-Razy Antics. Kind of little mini reviews of those three games. It says, with the re- release of these, K-Byte establishes itself as one of the top software producers for the Atari home computer. I don't know that I'd say that, but they did. There's a big three-page article called The Choppers of Mercy by Jim Sammons, which is an interview with Dan Gorlin and a review of Choplifter. And of course, Choplifter was ported to the Atari as a a straight port into Graphics 8. In the little mini-review section, they talk about Pac-Man, the Atari version, Alibaba, and a game called Starblazer by Tony Suzuki, who several issues ago was interviewed by Bill Budge, and this is the, so this is the game he wrote for the Apple and then ported it himself to the Atari, although it came out as Skyblazer. The Atari version looked like it was a, a straight port. Uh, well, let me take that back. It's not a straight port, but it seems like the author didn't use player missile graphics or scrolling capabilities, but did use DLIs. It's written in Modi, so it's, it's multicolored and it's not artifact in color. And it's an interesting game in that it's kind of like a, a scramble sort of game, except it seems like there's little missions that you've got to complete. You have these targets on the ground that you can bomb if you're low enough. You can also crash into stuff if you're too low. And then once you pull up above a certain altitude, then you the fire button fires like lasers going forward. I played a little bit. I didn't quite get the hang of it. 
Uh, maybe I should have read the instructions to figure out what you have to do because there's little parachute things that come down that I'm not sure if you have to like shoot or rescue. Um, but it's worth exploring and I might actually review it in a future episode. There's also another little game called The Vaults of Zurich, which is a mode zero maze adventure game. So it generates random mazes and so it seems like kind of a roguelike sort of game. There's the article Atari Sound, Pokey in the Black Holes by Bill Williams. And it makes me wonder, is this the same Bill Williams who wrote Alley Cat? It might be. He always, all these programs always had great sound effects, like Salmon Run had that really impressive sounding water. Um, Alley Cat, of course, Necromancer, talks about kind of using sound to fill the void to kind of like make it more immersive and avoid sort of, you know, dull or blank areas in a game. Nearing the end of the magazine here, the high score table is now a full two pages. Sabotage is still the same 86,000 high score, and now for the first time I see that they have some differences for the Atari. Like, for instance, there's a Raster Blaster for the Apple. The high score is 7 million, and Raster Blaster for the Atari is 990,000. Yeah, another one, Apple Panic on the Apple is 546,000, and Apple Panic on the Atari is 285,000. There's Canyon Climber for the Atari, 32,000. Centipede on the Atari, 391,000. Crossfire, which is a game I've seen advertisements for in this magazine a lot because it's an online game. For the Apple, the high score is 1 million, and for the Atari, the high score is 16,000. Dodge Racer on the Atari, the high score is 720. There's Jawbreaker on the Apple, high score 244,000, and Jawbreaker on the Atari, high score 113,000. And there's K-Razy Shootout, high score 32,000. Yeah, Threshold Apple Atari, 940,000 versus 140,000. Tumblebugs, Apple versus the Atari, and this is close. 73, or 7,205 for the Apple, and 7,023 for the Atari. And that's the end of this issue, and so now we'll just do regular issues from here on out. It's six times a year, every other month, and so next month, September 82, for the next episode, will be a regular issue of Softline. Alright, let's look at the game. Since I'm not up to doing stuff with Omnivore quite yet, I had this idea of, let's look at games that have advertisements that we've seen in some of the magazines. And I described the ad earlier. So this is Rear Guard by Adventure International. You know, it's a big ad, full color, full page. And it's been in, you know, it's in this, what, this compute. And then I've seen it for months now. It's billed as an arcade style game. And then I found there's a box image from Atari Mania. And let me just read you the description on the box. I'll tell you up front, it's not accurate. And it says here, description of Atari version, Apple version, similar. It says, not since Atari Star Raiders has there been a program charged with such arcade-like power. In an awesome display of graphics realism, and let me just parenthetically say, ha-ha, you are there, charged with protecting your mothership from the deadly waves of enemy drone missiles that are approaching from behind. You must maneuver your ship around the drones as they pass and destroy them before they move off-screen into contact with the mothership. It continues, RearGuard flaunts the full range of Atari's color and sound capabilities and features graphics so crisp and fluid that they actually seem to border on advanced computer animation. Holy cow, this is like false advertising. Spoiler alert. RearGuard also features many extras which are normally found only on expensive arcade machines, including advanced play levels, running high score, two-player setting, brilliant colors, horizontal scrolling, and truly mind-boggling sounds. So if you've been searching for a program that will squeeze the maximum from your computer, then you've found it. Rear guard, your Atari may never be the same. And I don't want to, this is odd. I don't want to bag on the author, because I'm certain the author didn't write this. This is, you know, marketing speak. The author is Neil Larimer. It says, assisted by Sparky Starks. The Apple version is by John Anderson. And we actually might review the Apple version after this, just as a comparison point. 
See, I don't know if this is going to be my first like super negative review, um, but let me just say up front that had I purchased this game for twenty nine ninety five or whatever the retail price is, I would be very disappointed. The Atari version, anyway. Let's let's put it that way. It has a program parameters section on here on the back of the box. It says language hybrid, which is, should be a clue that this may not be great. Uh, classification arcade, yeah, that's true. Sound, yes. Game, save feature, no. Multiple skill levels, yes. Graphics oriented, yes. Real time, yes. Special equipment, joystick. So Adventure International, Division of Scott Adams, Inc. And it has a screenshot that says actual Atari version. And it's hard to tell what it is. It's kind of like low detail. And then this is actual Apple screen. And there's much more stuff going on. And it's, it's much more detailed. So the first flag to me is it says language hybrid. So you need to have the basic cartridge installed to do this. The image on Atari Mania is a cassette image. So you have to, on the Atari 800 emulator, which is what I use, you boot that with basic installed and then type C load and then run. And you're presented with the start screen. Choose the number of players and then your skill level and the sort of the sound changes as the skill level changes. And then when you start the game, you have this ship that's using like quad width players. And so it appears very blocky. There's this scrolling mountainous train on the bottom, which is probably, I don't know, 20 pixels high, maybe. It looks like it's in graphics mode E. Well, looking at the display list, it uses mode D for 50 lines and then mode E for 19 lines. And well, let me back up a little bit. This is a horizontal scrolling game, but they're not actually using any of the horse, horizontal scrolling registers, it appears, which is actually pretty impressive. But this is basic. There must be some machine language stuff that is going on. So yeah, sort of like a star field on the first, on the top, maybe three quarters of the screen and mountain, scrolling mountains on the bottom with some text info below that. It scrolls from right to left. Your ship is on the left side. These enemies approach from the left, going a little bit faster than you. You can control your ship to go up, down, left, and right. And when you go right, you speed up. And you also speed up the scrolling mountain and star field. The enemy ships don't speed up, so you do catch up to them. But your ship like slowly creeps to the right of the screen. So the gap, you know, the gap between the right of the screen and your ship gets smaller and smaller. So the idea here is to shoot the ships or crash into them. And the shooting is awkward because you don't shoot out of the nose of the ship. You shoot out of like the wing, which is sort of extended to the down below the ship. So where you think the front of the ship is, is above where your shot comes out. So it's, it's hard to line up. So that was a poor design choice. You do have to avoid the mountains, otherwise your shields take damage. And it sounds like there's ways to recharge your shields after you complete levels but I haven't gotten that far and honestly don't think I'm going to play this program far enough to get that far. So really, this is the quality of a magazine game at best. And the idea that this would be compared to Star Raiders in some sort of a non-ironic way is laughable, really. I do not fault the author at all. I mean, the author didn't have any say in the marketing text or whatever. And if he got paid for this, I mean, that's great. That's, that's yeah, I hope Adventure International paid him. The Apple version is much better. I mean, it's harder con- to control because the um, it's keyboard or well I didn't ha- I don't have Apple paddles and my emulator doesn't support that but I tried it at the keyboard and so it is, it is harder to control but the the mountains on the Apple version extend to a full probably half the the screen height on the top there's a score you know in the score area there's a fuel and a shield sort of bar meter that goes down by you know discrete chunks as you lose energy or, or shields whereas on the Atari version it's just a you know some numbers on the bottom. The Apple version has many more enemies where you only get two enemies on the Atari version. There can be, you know, five, six, eight things happening on the Apple version. The mountain also has a, as it scrolls by, it has a volcano sometimes that's spouting out stuff. 
There's also this interesting, in the Apple version, this sort of roving thing that sort of follows the contour of the mountain. And I haven't figured out what it's supposed to do. It looks like it might gather stuff as you shoot some of the enemy ships, but I haven't figured it out. It's definitely a much better game. And that game, I think, would at the time would probably be worth, you know, the $30 or whatever. Whereas this one, the Atari version, is clearly not. The Apple version, the title screen, also has an interesting effect. You know, in the Atari, you can get the color cycling so it looks like it's flashing. Well, they try to do that on the Apple, but, you know, since there's only, what, six colors on the high-res screen, instead of just changing a color register, they have to redraw the text every, you know, so often. So they do it fast, and so it, it cycles quickly. And it does give a sort of a, a the same kind of effect that you get on the Atari just by changing the color registers. But it's interesting, you know, the, the way the Apple high-res screen works is the, the pixel position affects the color, so it, it's kind of like this interesting shimmering effect, you know, because odd or even pixels, and, you know, the way the high-res screen works, it, it is, like, shaking a little bit. They can't represent any color at a particular pixel, so sometimes the you'll see the letters like kind of morph a little bit as they change from one color to the next. And just so you don't think I'm bagging on Neil Larimer, he wrote another game, which I'll we'll, we'll take a quick look at. It's called Stratos, also published by Adventure International, and this one is written in machine language. It's kind of like a kind of like a missile command slash space invaders clone. You've got a city on the bottom with a shield over top of it, and these three aliens at a time come down and try to bomb it. And you've got a target that you control with your cursor or with your joystick that has a cursor and the fire button fires missiles from either side of the screen that sort of converge on a point, go up vertically a little bit, and then spread out to the left and right. So you've got multiple ways you can hit the enemies as they come in. And that is a much better game than Rear Guard is. I mean, here in sort of, you know, mid-late summer 1982, it doesn't compete against the Elite games, but it's certainly better than any magazine game that ever came out up to this point. So yeah, Stratus is a much better game than Rearguard, and the programmer clearly has some skill. The, the sound is pretty repetitive and kind of annoying, especially at the title screen, but the gameplay itself is pretty good. So all in all, a big thumbs down for Rearguard on the Atari, probably thumbs up for the, the Rearguard on the Apple version, and yeah, I thought Stratus was also, you know, playable. So I think maybe for the near future, I will try to continue to do this is like take a look at some magazine advertisement and see what the game is like compared to what the hype might be generated from the uh, from the advertisement. All right. Well, I guess that's it for this show. If you've got any feedback for me, you can use Twitter. I'm at Atari 8-Bit Games. I theoretically have an Instagram account, but I never use it. That's at Player Missile. Or you can always send me an email, which is probably the best way to get in contact with me. That's at feedback at playermissile.com. Next episode, don't have any idea what game I'll check out. I'll find something in one of the ads, maybe, and do that. And the magazine coverage will include the next episode of Softline, as well as all the usual stuff. So until next episode, remember, if you want to see for sales, don't go to France. <laughs>